Hello, beautiful. And what I really want to know is, what is good in your life today? I'm Kia, and this is another episode of the Female Veterans Podcast. Today, I have with me two incredible female pioneers. They both served in the Air Force, and they are the creators of an incredible magazine for our sisters. It's called Avow. And if you haven't heard of it, you absolutely need to check it out. Now, uh, in the latest issue, I have been privileged enough to be featured as one of the female veteran podcasters out there creating great content for us. And it is my honor and privilege to have them both here today for an interview so you can find out more about them, their story, and about the magazine. So welcome, ladies. So I'm so happy to have you here. Hello. Be joining you. So, with me, I have Christina and Sheila, and respectively, the editor in chief and publisher of the magazine. And so, I want to jump right in and ask you my very first question. I guess I'll start with you, Christina. Um, what was boot camp like for you? What was boot camp like for me? Wow. Um, I remember getting off a uh, bus after coming from the airport in 1984, March of 84. And um, I kept thinking it couldn't be like the movies. It couldn't be like the movies. Got off that bus. They lined us up. And right away, we started getting yelled at. And it was exactly like the movies. It was just very surreal. Um, I remember I didn't like needles. I'm not a needle person. I was waiting in line to get the immunizations um, at Lackland Air Force Base, and I started feeling sick to my stomach. And so I kept debating, do I ask my tech instructor that I need to go to the restroom? I'm getting sick. And I finally decided, ah, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and hold off. And then I started getting nauseous. And I was like, okay, forget it. I went to her. I said, I'm feeling like I'm going to get sick. She said, get back in the line now. I mean, she was really harsh. And I threw up on her boots. And so, yeah, <laughs> you're laughing, Kia. So it was it was hilarious, actually. But now it's hilarious. Back then, it wasn't. Um, you know, and other than that, we had other serious stuff, too. A, a young lady in my squadron had a miscarriage. Oh. Um, I remember coming around the bay, and she was on the floor. There was blood everywhere. And that was very traumatic for me as an 18-year-old. I, I had never experienced anything like that. So she came in with a, apparently, a, a, I want to say a tubal pregnancy. I'm not sure if that's what it was, but there was blood everywhere. She actually had the miscarriage in our bay, our, our dorm area. Wow. And, um, and on a lighter side, uh, another uh, interesting story, uh, one of the gals in my squadron got kicked out for sneaking candy in. What? Yeah, so, and, and I, I always assumed they figured if you were stupid enough to sneak candy in into basic training, you were not going to be able to keep secrets for the military. Um, so, so basic training otherwise wasn't bad. I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't have a hard time getting through it. I figured if I could do it, anybody could do it. So that's kind of my, my story in a nutshell, you know, in a nutshell with uh, basic training for me. Wow. So I, I laugh at, at the throw up story because I'm thinking of, <laughs> I'm thinking of um, your, well, in the Navy, they were our company commanders. So I'm thinking of the puke on her boots <laughs> from you saying, Hey, I'm, I'm not feeling well. 
And I remember how hard they were, at least for me in boot camp too. But like they really wouldn't have cared, right? So yeah, I can see that that whole um that whole story playing out. And um, I imagine that had to be really traumatic for you though, because here you are sick and vulnerable. And it's like that first moment where you're like, they don't care. They really just don't care. Absolutely. Absolutely. Such such fun memories, but also such traumatic memories as well. I mean, it is that culture shock for boot Mm -hmm. camp. You know, it's like that moment where you're like, okay, I have that moment too, where I had to, um, I told the story in my very first episode um, of, I had, they had just um, given permission for women to wear um, braids in their hair, much like they changed the hair regulations for Air Force recently, right? And so I had um, those individual braids in my hair because I'm thinking, okay, this will keep me from having to worry about my hair through boot camp, right? And so Mm -hmm. I get there and it's approved for active duty, but not for boot camp. So they're like, Mm -hmm. you got to get these out. And like, they they take Uh about eight hours, sometimes more to get them in. Mm -hmm. So, and about the same amount of time to get them out really. And I remember every, it was the, it was like the, I think it was the first day we were there or the second day. And where we were, everyone was getting their hair cut and everything like that. And they were like, if you don't get those out of here, by the time we're done, we're just going to buzz cut your hair off. And, and that's, wow. That's funny yeah. that you say that because my hair was actually down past my waist when I got in. And uh-huh. you know what I did? I had them take it off. Did you, did you tell them cut it off? Oh yes. They cut off. I think about, uh, oh gosh, I, I'm thinking it had to be a foot and a half. Um, a good 12 to, it had to be 18 inches, maybe over 18 inches. And I've done that a couple of times in my life because I keep my hair long, but basic training, it was past my waistline. And I have a picture in my yearbook somewhere from basic training and they just cut the whole thing off like a ponytail, you know, like a, a, a horse's tail wow. and it was gone. Wow. How, how did you feel? I felt like liberated because I didn't have to worry about my hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you feel about that then, or how did you? How do you feel about it now? Like, what was their purpose in making you take the braids out? Was it because they thought that the braids were pretty, or because they, you know, because they felt like you had some sort of a concept of like ego almost in order to have braids that they were a pretty thing rather than a functional thing that you could put like in a bun if you needed to, or. Like, how do you, how did you feel then versus how do you feel now? Like, I don't understand why they would keep that from you in basic training unless they thought it was a vanity issue, which I disagree with, but I'm curious what you think. (laughs) I think it was a mistake on my recruiter's part, (laughs) to be honest with you. Okay. And I just don't think he knew really. And he just knew that for active duty, it was approved now. So when I asked, he said, yeah, go do it. You know, See, that makes, makes me think, I wonder if it was, if to them, it was a vanity thing. Like you can't wear fingernail polish. Yeah, I braids think so. don't serve the same purpose that fingernail no. polish does. You know? No, no. And I, it just, I think, so I had both a male and a female company commander, commander, because I was in a integrated unit with guys and girls, right? Okay. So they I think that 
so the female, uh, she was the one who was like, we're going to have to cut those off if you don't get them out of here. I think she was just following the rules. The rules were no braids. And it was just, there was no, nothing behind it other than that's not satisfactory. You're unsat with those in, you got to get them out. Right. And so, and as ironically, I, I experienced a lot of, um, I actually later in my military career failed in a, a uniform inspection. And those that remember me in the military who served with me will know that my uniform when I was in uniform was pristine. <laughs> okay. Um, like that was like my thing. And to fail a uniform inspection was ridiculous for me. And I actually failed one because of my braids again, like later, yeah. like, a, like a year later. And I fought, I got into a bit of trouble because I fought it. I fought it. I challenged it and I won. I, I won. And, um, good. But How let's just consider, say, I, <laughs> like, why did it make you fail? What, what about the braids made you fail? They said that they were too thick. Oh, so you, they, there was a measurement of how okay. thick they could be wow. that, that mine were too thick. So wow. I challenged it and proved that the regulation had been updated and I was able to, you know, push past that, but it didn't actually serve me because it, it gave me some sort of unwanted attention as sort of a troublemaker, right? Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> With my superiors. So that's funny you bring that up, Kia, because my maiden name is really difficult to pronounce. So when I went in, I went in with the maiden name of, oh, it's Olguin, O-L-G-U-I-N, Olguin. I'm Hispanic, but I don't look it. So when I got there and people saw my name, I thought at first they kept pronouncing it Algin, Olgoon, all, you know, it, I mean, Sheila knows she's seen my maiden name. So it's a very difficult one to pronounce. And it's one of those ones where if you say it wrong, you kind of feel embarrassed because you're saying it wrong. Well, I, here I am 18 years old and I'm thinking, wait a minute, they pick on people who they can pronounce their name. I, therefore, I never, ever corrected them butchering my name. Never. Because I figured if they couldn't pronounce my name, guess what? I never got called for anything. And uh, and uh, one last thing for my basic training that I, I probably should have said, but my dad was really good friends with the mayor of San Antonio at the time. And so during practice for graduation day, uh, my, uh, tech instructor came up to me, staff sergeant, tech sergeant Simics. I still remember her. She came up to me and she says, rumor is your dad's on base. Um, he was an army general, uh, retired army general. And so she says that they're looking at pulling you out of, out of ranks and taking you on the base for the day. And I'm like, oh, great. So sure enough, I, I ended up going uh, to lack, you know, I, I ended up going to the visitor center as a, a, a trainee with my dad and the mayor of San Antonio. And I spent the day with my dad and the mayor. And uh, so it, that's something that you don't normally have happen in the military, but it did to me. And it was kind of a neat experience, but one of those things that's normally taboo. So I'm curious about how everyone around you felt like your peers. I, you know what? I don't recall talking about it. I don't ever remember really discussing it with anybody. I kind of kept to myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I just know the TI was super, both TIs were super nice to me after that. Uh, <laughs> it was really strange. Not that they were mean, mean, but you know what I mean? They were, they were just extraordinarily nicer to me at that point, which was really strange. I bet that must've felt weird. Like, oh, it, it was so nice to me I, now. Yeah. I still kind of have, I can go back and put myself in those shoes of a basic trainee and think, 
okay, I was pulled out of a graduation rehearsal because my dad, my daddy was in town. You know, it's just kind of weird. It felt very strange. Wow. That's a unique experience. What was yeah. your um, boot camp experience like, Sheila? Um, I don't know that it was necessarily a whole lot different, probably, than anybody else's. I don't have a, a whole lot of memories of it. Um, I see some pictures now and then, like in the little magazine that we got. But um, I remember we had a we had one lady who had uh, she had beautiful like that you know the Irish dancers that red kinky curly hair. Mm-hmm. She had this this beautiful like dark red gorgeous hair, and she ended up getting lice and had to have her hair cut so short. It was so traumatic for her. Oh, um, it was traumatic because people didn't want to be around her. You know, everybody was afraid. Um, we were not a very good flight. We were we were our uh, technical instructor's first female flight, so he did not know what to do with us. And we were bad. We we didn't know how to act. We had no clue, so we kept pushing the limits. And um, I didn't push the limits because I just wanted to get out of there. But I remember, like, we were so bad we didn't get to go, like, to the store or anything, probably into the last week or two. So we had to shine our boots, and we had nothing to shine them with because nobody could go anywhere and get anything. So he was yelling at us to shine our boots, and he left. And then when he came back, he narrowed his eyes to find out what the heck we were doing because the only thing we had to shine our boots with were tampons. They were cotton. So we were shining our boots with cotton, you know, kiwi. And he's like, he said, what are you doing? What are you doing? works. And we're like, improvise, sir. You know, and he left and he came back and he threw boxes at us of cotton balls. And he never said another word about it. <laughs> but uh, that's hilarious. Know, so we were able to, you know, we did what we had to do. I remember being, I remember things sometimes when other people talk about them, like, Somebody mentioned recently about being a road guard. So my daughter-in-law is now in the Air Force. And she talks about things, and it reminds me of things that I had forgotten about. I, I was one of the road guards, and I forgot about that. Yeah, Being a rainbow when you get to tech school, that terminology is thing that I don't remember. I don't know if it, you just block it out or just my type of personality, I move on. I do remember being... I had asthma off and on growing up and the army wouldn't take me because I disclosed that. So when I went to the air force, um, my family moved around a lot. And my dad said, you just tell them that I said you were never diagnosed with it because I, there were no medical records or anything. I was never like long-term treated for asthma or anything. So that's what I said. I said, yeah, my dad said I was never diagnosed with it. But when the ladies started using perfumes and hairsprays, after being in that controlled environment for, we had basic training for six weeks. So for being in a controlled environment for four weeks with no perfume, no hairspray, no makeup, no nothing. And then everybody started using it. I had a, I had a big asthma attack. And I remember, and I, I remember laying in my cot and thinking, am I going to go tell them and go to the emergency room? Or am I just going to lay here and try to control my breathing? And I made it through the night. And made it out of basic training, but I I ended up um, probably what happened was I had a cold and I didn't know it because when I got out I had what they used to call walking pneumonia when I oh. got to tech school and the tech somebody saw me at tech school and said you need to go to sick call before you do anything else 
So I think it was interesting that the military taught you to be um, like to deny your body for what you have to do. And I realized that that's something that you have to do when you're in the military, when you're in basic, when maybe when you're in a war zone. But in some regards, it doesn't really help you either. You know, if you're if you're military property and you're creating more sickness upon yourself and more sickness upon other people, that's not really helpful for the force either. So there's a lot of dichotomies, I think, that I think of now that I didn't know anything about then. And I look back and I go, oh, this didn't really serve me later on. Like those four years, those six weeks of training stay with you the rest of your life. You know, that time in service, even I only served four years that I still do things today that uh, four years of my life carry so far forward. That's surprising. Well, yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I served five years active and then three Mm -hmm. years in active reserve. And the five years on active duty um, really shaped me. You know, my mother said before I went into the military that going in would give me the foundation of my life. It would give me a strong foundation of my life. And um, she was right. And I came out of the military already knowing that I was a disabled veteran. I got really sick probably my second year in and just never recovered. And um, so a lot of that is the same for me in addition to the health things, right? Mm -hmm. Five years really gave me this foundation of the person that I am today. Yep. And when you, I I personally think when you, when you start to age or when your body changes, you know, we, we don't all have 17, 18 year old bodies forever, you know? when your body changes or when you start to age or, or if you, you know, wind up with a disease or an intolerance to try to change that mindset from, I must control this, or I'm almost a valueless human being if I can't control my bodily function. It's a lot mm-hmm. of mental dynamics. I think that go into that. Oh yeah. I mean, a thousand percent. I, I think I spent a lot of time dealing with that after mm-hmm. I left the military because my illnesses are invisible. So that it makes it even harder because it's like no one can understand what you're going through. I know a lot of our sisters have this where the, it's PTSD or it's something that you can't really see, but you have it and people don't realize what you're going through. But the person who is the hardest on you is you because mm-hmm. you're kind of trying to control it. You're trying to push through. You're trying to do all of these things when your body is giving you all the indications that you're tired or you're unwell or you need you know, to take care of yourself in a different way, but it's a whole like cycle of fighting within yourself that can lead to anxiety and depression and all sorts of other things. I think it's, it's definitely self-destructive, you know, and if you, I mean, I held everybody else to that standard for a couple of decades, you know, so I didn't understand why other people had to be sick. You know, what do you mean you're ill? Like, what do you, what do you talk? It's so a kidney stone is a kidney stone. Who cares? Get over it. You know, uh, until I went through, until you get to that moment where you go through your own health traumas and like, I had to take Lasix and Lasix is a type of medication that uh, some people take it for high blood pressure, different people take it for different reasons, but it makes you go to the bathroom. You have to go to the bathroom within 20 minutes and there, there's no not going to the bathroom. That is not an option. So when you've got it like ingrained in your brain, you know, that we're all taught, you know, military bearing, control your body, 
no matter what, don't laugh, Lack don't smile, compassion. don't, don't, don't hug, don't cry, nothing. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you can't control your body. Like, uh, okay. You know, <laughs> how do you reconcile that? You know, and how do you reconcile it for other people, but much less yourself? I find that really fascinating. Super that was a hard one to get over. Hard one to get yeah, over. The lack of compassion was a huge thing that I noticed. Uh, you're completely right. You hit the nail on the head with that one. Cause I had no compassion, even though I was in sick call a lot. I, I tried to suck up a lot of what I had. And, you know, after getting out, the same thing. Yeah. So compassion is a huge one that they instill in us. Lack of compassion, excuse me. Um, yeah. You know, and I found it. Thank goodness it took a long time, but I found it. Yeah. My goodness. So it, it just really um, runs deep, that conditioning for boot camp. I think oh, yeah. in all of the forces, I know boot camp for me was eight weeks. And it was... Um, definitely tore me down. Like it did what it was supposed to do in most regards. Um, it definitely broke me down and built me back up, but some of the, um, some of the programming didn't stick. So that made the rest of my career a little bit more challenging than other people's. Um, because I still questioned everything. <laughs> so it's hard. Washing. I call it brainwashing. I should refer to it as programming. You're <laughs> programming. Yeah, it's brainwashing. Let's call a spade a spade. Okay. We're we're all sisters here. We know. Well, yeah. You know, they're talking now about, you know, things that happen like on January 6th. You know, mm-hmm. I work with a veterans group down in DC that they do a lot of um they do a lot of work with the local like BLM BLM protesters and um, activists and stuff. And on the January 6th um, insurrection, one of the things that they talk about a lot is deprogramming, that the military, we program ourselves when we go into basic training, but we do not have a deprogramming when we get out. We have some transition services, but we really don't have a a deprogramming into Yes, you take an oath, but now you are a civilian and you have other responsibilities now, you know, that are that are different than what you had when you were in the service. And mm-hmm. I think that start, begin, that conversation only recently began. I don't ever remember ever hearing the word deprogramming and military together, ever. No, and, no. And we've seen military people do things that I don't, I don't want to say that they're acceptable when you're in, but, you know, a few good men was the start of maybe that discussion, right? Mm-hmm. You know, do you do everything you're required to do? But that discussion just came to the forefront again. You know, we're not deprogramming people to survive yeah. in the civilian world, you know? And that's a big part of the discussions we have on this show, the transition out. Because I'm sure we've talked about this. Um, I've talked about this with a lot of people. We always talk about, and we will in this conversation, talk about your transition out when we get to that point. But um, what we see is that exactly what you're saying is that we have like a few TAPS classes and then we're out. And there's been, you know, it was it was six or eight weeks of boot camp programming, brainwashing. And there's nothing on the other end to help us really go back into um, civilian life with our best chance, you know, of thriving and being successful. So um, what do you think, Christina? Uh, it's, it's an interesting topic. Like I said, I've always referred to it as brainwashing and I really shouldn't call it that because I know I've offended people when I call it brainwashing, but in a sense, that's kind of what we are. We, we're six weeks of 
of taking us from our being a teen and to not knowing the world, most of us, into six weeks of life-changing experiences, putting us and making us look the same where all these emperor penguins running around uh, with black and white or whatever color it may be in uniform. And, you know, none of us are different. None of us have a personality. None of us can be anything more than what we are for our military service. It's, um, it's you're taken and you're put into a box and that box is what you fit into. And it does make it very difficult, especially when you are very impressionable as, as an 18 year old. And especially when you, I was very naive at that age. And a lot of people are a little more adult and grown up than I was, but I was one of those that was unfortunately, I was very naive and it took a long time to get away from that. I agree. Me too. I was so idealistic. It's laughable now, <laughs> but um, but that's what I was. I was just like, I was fresh from private school. I actually enlisted um, in my junior year, like, and I just went on a delayed enlistment until I was, you know, um, graduated from high school. So mm-hmm. I just had all these ideals from this environment that I came from and I the wor- expected the world to be this wonderful place where yeah. very few bad things happen or bad things only happen to bad people, right? So yeah. it was eye-opening, you know, to see when, once I got out of boot camp and got to a school as a hospital corpsman and even then staff to see the reality of how the world was on the base. So that brings me to my next question. And um, I'll start with you, Sheila, this time. What was your active duty experience like? Um, I, it was both good and bad. Um, I also went into delayed enlistment. I tried to get in at 15. <laughs> and my father said, oh. absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, Because um, that's when the Gulf War started. So and I went into linguists. So I went to the linguist school out in Monterey. For 18 months. Um, I didn't have structure that I needed when I was there. And I don't know how that could have been handled any differently. But I was, I was, I was pretty naive out there. And yeah, so I was learning taking my classes during the day, but I was having fun on the weekends and during the week after my classes. And I didn't, I don't know that I was, I was um don't know that I was mature enough yet to be able to take classes during the day and then study four hours a night that somewhere that wasn't what I had. So when I graduated, I passed the course, but my, my um, number value wasn't high enough to continue on with Arabic. And at that time, the Gulf War was already over the first one. You know, that lasted all of what, seven days or 14 days, something like that, you know, so they had too many Arabic linguists at that time. And the Air Force doesn't cross-train linguists into, well, they don't take a, a linguist and then make them a reader and a writer instead of a speaker. You have to have all of them. And I take longer to learn things. So I didn't dream in Arabic until a year or two after I was done with all the courses. So they transferred me over into photography afterward. And I was very bitter. I was very bitter and very angry. And I had an MST episode in California. Mm-hmm. So I th- now in hindsight, I can look back and see that that's why I got married because I had no interest in getting married beforehand. But afterward, I think, you know, being a female, sometimes you gravitate to, okay, now I have somebody to protect me more. And he was in the army. I was in the Air Force. So I got out of everything that I was involved in, got married 
I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know how to do any of this stuff, you know? So I started eating and he liked pasta. So I ate a whole lot of pasta and I ended up on the weight program between transitioning from California to New Mexico. And then the rest of my career, I ended up loving being a photographer, but I had no formal training in it. So I didn't know like that you need math skills. You need certain things to do photography. I didn't have that, but I had a good base that I was involved with and a good group of people, but I never ended up getting off the weight program. And it created a a pretty major eating disorder for me and health disorders outside of just eating disorders. And then you have uh, that whole mind process of, I I was five foot 10 and 147 pounds. And I was 10 to 15 pounds underweight, but could never pass the body fat. So you go back to those discussions about why can't you control your body? You know, and then you get a letter every month that tells you that you are a failure to perform. That is what the letter says, a a letter every single month for two years telling you that. My goodness. You know, and then it create for me, it created a cycle of of starving and then binge eating after weigh-ins and just very poor behavior. You know, there was not a lot of self-care there. By the time I came out, I ended up with a heart arrhythmia and ended up with heart surgery two years after I got out. I mean, it was, it was messy and I was very angry because I wanted to be in for 20 years. I wanted to be a career. And nowadays I hear that they, they manage the weight program differently, you know, but there was a lot, I had a lot of hostility during that time. And after getting out and for a long time, I didn't have anything to do with the military for probably close to 20 years after I got out. I can imagine because I actually, um, So I shifted from being in medical records to Mm -hmm. the pharmacy and in the pharmacy, our commander, Commander Hirsch, he was amazing. Shout out to Commander Hirsch. Um, All of our officers in the pharmacy, like everyone in the the pharmacy at Naval Hospital Great Lakes was pretty amazing, I got to say. But I was coming in there with a bad reputation as a troublemaker. And so I really had to earn my spot and I hadn't gone to pharmacy school. I was OJT. So um, I just wanted to see if I liked pharmacy and I was going to consider going to pharmacy school. Um, But then I decided to get out because a lot of things happened, right? Kind of like you, where I was like, you know what? I didn't think I was going to be a lifer, but I thought maybe I might do more than five years. And then I was just like, "Mm, actually, no, I I came in thinking five years, that's it. And that's what it was going to be right eight years in total so um i started running because it was like our commander was an avid runner and and you got an extra half an hour for lunch if you worked out so i was like i'm on it (laughs) like we're gonna run we're gonna do this running thing and then um i ended up losing a lot of weight and i got counseled for having an eating disorder Usually didn't think of that until you were talking. I didn't remember it. Maybe I blocked it out, but I did. I remember um, my HM1 pulling me aside and telling me, "Hey, what's going on? You're not. You're looking extra skinny. You, what's going on with you?" And it was like a whole situation to where I started getting very self-conscious about um, running, and then it, it actually started a process of where I would go up and down in weight, and I and I already had. Um, when I was a teenager, 
I had been diagnosed and with a compulsive eating disorder. So, and I had managed it. I actually had to lose weight to get into the Navy. I had to get a waiver. Actually, I couldn't get in until I lost 14 pounds. So, but they were like, we're going to allow you to have time to lose this weight. Right. So I did it. So I was already a little bit sensitive. Right. Right. So I, I actually can really identify with what you're talking about because I did that for the, for about three years up and down in weight and, you know, and then I'd get bigger and they'd be like, Hey, you're not going to pass. You got to get your, you know, your weight under control. And then I'd go back to like this really hard working out and running and like everything to get the weight off. And it was just, um, a cycle that was really Mm -hmm. unhealthy and psychological again, and, um, really about controlling your body, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of control issues. So, yeah, I identify a lot with that. Um, Christina, what was your experience like when you transitioned to active duty? Well, I, I actually, for 10 years, two months and three days, um, Three of those years were regular active duty, and the remainder of the time was as an active guard reservist. I was an AGR. Um, the AGR time I spent with the 129th Rescue Group at Moffett Field, and that's in uh, Northern California near San Francisco. The first three years I spent at George Air Force Base, and uh, when I first got in, and that's where I was stationed, I, I remember getting there the first day, calling my dad, and him asking me, okay, so what's it like? And uh, um, I said, Dad, there's a beach right outside the gates of the base. He goes, you're kidding me. I said, yeah, there's no water, just a lot of beach. Uh, you know, it's in the middle of the Thai desert. And um, I don't know if you knew this, Kia, but Sheila and I pretty much grew up in the same area of New Mexico, uh, same town. And oh. we've never met each other. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Small world. Yeah, and so we have a lot of mutual friends, and she knows, uh, I think she knows a lot of my family members and stuff, and I know, you know, same with her, and, um, you know, we're a bit different different in the, the age group, but we both know a lot of the same people and come from the same area, so so anyway, I kind of wanted to get that out of the way, so the whole desert thing kind of jives with Sheila as well, so she understands where I'm coming from, but um, yeah, so I told my dad there was a, be a big beach outside of the gates, and he was laughing. Uh, George Air Force Base, kind of the armpit of California, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, nothing to do for an 18-year-old, didn't have a car, um, enjoyed it when I got there, uh, got married right away, and got pregnant right away, and I ended up uh, bleeding through my whole pregnancy. Uh, I I was on bed rest the entire time I was pregnant with my son when I was only 20, and um then uh, started having a lot of issues with illnesses and stuff. Uh, didn't really realize how bad I was until I got my medical records last year. And I big old thick, you know, inch and a half. I actually took a ruler out and measured it. And a lot of my medical records are still missing. But I, I went through and, and tried to see how many times I was at the hospital for different ailments on the base I was at. And um, found out later that uh, the World War II barracks I had lived in were sitting on top of a benzene plume. Uh, so drank the water from it. Uh, the base housing was on top of a, well, actually the base housing that I lived in uh, at George, we, they used organophosphate herbicides for, as a pesticide. Oh, and so they don't even allow those anymore. They're not legal anymore. How'd you even find that out? It's all in paperwork because George Air Force Base is a super fun site. It's actually been contaminated. Oh, I know what that is. Yeah, the <laughs> 
there's lawsuits going on and everything. And, and of course it didn't occur to me till later on that this had happened to me. And, and this is why this had affected my health. What you were talking about things that mm-hmm. happened to you. Um, while I was there, I was just a kid and having fun and I was got married and enjoying my friends and doing things I like to do. Um, except for bleeding through my whole pregnancy, you know, things like that. And uh, I went from uh, being a healthy 18-year-old to being sick all the time. And I I remember leaving George Air Force Base via Palace Chase in April 87. And I got into the Guard and went to Northern California and got my AGR position. And uh, went through a divorce, unfortunately. And uh, ended up uh, basically in this great rescue group that I was in. And I, when I first got there, I was just on top of the world. I felt things were, were really good. My health was still good at the time. I didn't really know that I was having issues, but I, but I was, and, um, I had a lot of unfortunate experiences with MST with sexual assaults and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, multiple ones. I, I mean, I won't even really go into detail, but one of them was so difficult that probably around the time I met right before I met my husband, I had this one uh, higher ranking uh, person come in my office a lot because I worked in publications distribution office for the Air Force. And he would come in there quite frequently and hit on me. And I don't even know if that's a good word to use. Um, He was very vulgar. He was very, you know, if I was the only one in there, he would speak to me in ways that I wouldn't imagine anybody speaking to anybody. And he was sexually harassing. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And he was like, yeah. And I remember one time he actually told me, he says, ah, he says, if you sleep with me, you'll follow me around like a puppy. And it's like, well, that's even better to not sleep with you because I don't follow anybody around like a puppy. And I remember him telling me that. And he basically didn't say a puppy. He said a bitch. You know, it was just, wow. it, it was very odd. It was very awkward. I had never really, I had actually been transferred out of one location into that location in my unit and then had to endure that. And then um, I met my husband, got got married to my husband, and I, I remember that we were at a um, family day picnic for the unit, and the same man who had been sexually harassing me, he had been drinking at, at the uh, event, and, and that's not an excuse, but I remember I had walked by him, and, and for some reason he said something, and we were talking. It was a It was a mature discussion. It wasn't anything. It was just he asked me a question, and I was answering, and then he grabbed me by the breasts in front of everybody. <gasps> oh, and, and it was probably, there would had to have been over 30 people just there watching the softball game. And uh, the unit I used to be in at that point that I had been transferred from, they had asked my husband to be on their softball team because they knew he was a good player. And they said that I was always a maintenance person. So they felt that David, my husband was also part of their family. So they had, he was out in the field playing. He didn't witness it, but his mom and dad did. Oh, his mom and dad were there when it happened. And so what ended up happening after that is that my husband was told what happened. He ran over to the person who did it. And the person who did it immediately had 12 of his guys from the unit behind him. And those guys were threatening to beat my husband up. Oh, my and God. It would turn into a huge fiasco. It was a very traumatic time in my life. Um, it 
it, it accelerated what had happened with the sexual harassment in my office to out in the open. And of course, when you're looking at the mid nineties at that point, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't even the mid nineties. I'm talking the early nineties. It was yeah. very awkward and you don't really come out and say anything because if you do, guess what? You're, you're punished, especially if you're a female. So it was out in the open now. So the only thing my husband wanted was for an apology. And that's all I wanted as well. And so this person who did it said he would give an apology and he never did. But what did end up happening is the, the last two or three years of my career were, were hell. Um, the, the good old boys network was alive and well in the unit I was in. And this person, uh, was dating a gal in my office, but he was married. That was the other thing about this individual who kept hitting on me and sexually harassing me and then doing the sexual assault out in the open. He was actually dating a girl that I worked with. And um, so he was in my office consistently after that assault in public. So, and not only that, but once I got pregnant with my daughter, uh, which was in 93, I was off uh, right after I had my daughter I was off for six weeks or how I think it was six weeks for my maternity. And I was hearing there was an investigation going on in my office because the gal who I worked with, she was embezzling money and cutting fake orders for people. And those last two years that I was in, I didn't know this was going on. And I didn't realize I was being investigated as well because I worked in that office and what had happened is she ended up having a position that I was trying to get, which was cutting orders. I had already been doing it. So when they gave the position to her, I had to train her. So she's the one who ended up in the job, but she got the job because of who she was unfortunately having relations with. And so fast forward to about a year and a half, two years, the Friday before I had my daughter, it was September 24th, I believe, Friday, September 24th, 1993. I'm pretty sure I've got that date right. The OSI called me in their office at Moffett Field. And they sat me down and said, okay, we've been investigating you. And we know you didn't have anything to do with this. So now we need to investigate the person we are furthering with because she's going to have charges brought against her. And we think you have information. And so I was here in the OSI's office out to here with my daughter, you know, ready to have her. And sure enough, I told them what I knew about her, what she had done, the things that I had seen. And um, another individual in my office was called in as well. So then Friday goes to Sunday night. And then Monday, the 27th of September, I had my daughter. I actually went into labor. And then I found out that the... Uh, because of the good old boys network that was alive and well, this person in my office had everybody surrounding her and protecting her. They were trying to blame me for what she was doing. Oh. So, but the OSI knew better because I didn't have access to the system. So it, it, that's why they were trying to make my life hell because of what the sexual assault had done. What had happened with me with the sexual assault, they were using that against me with her and all the other stuff. So it was kind of all mixed in together. So they were keeping me from promotions. They were keeping me from all kinds of stuff happening because I wasn't one of the good old boys. I wasn't playing their game. I was that girl. 
I was that girl. <laughs> I was exactly that girl. So, so, so I had my daughter on that Monday and I was off for six weeks and I had people feeding me information that there was rumors that one of the good old boys who was a commander in my unit at the time was trying to send me to the sandbox because it was the Gulf War going on. So they were waiting for me to come out of my six weeks. I had to have, because back then you only had six weeks to lose the weight from having a child. Mm -hmm. That was it. It's a whole other story. That's why. And what Sheila said earlier, I'm exactly five foot 10 as well. Same as Sheila. My max weight was 155 when I got in and I was 155. Um, and because of the the health problems and all the stuff that they they bring in you, they put on you, you're you're set trying to figure out how to lose that weight, and of course you gain weight, and especially with all the trauma going on. So as I'm in this six weeks of maternity leave with my daughter and trying to lose weight because they're trying to med board me if I don't lose the weight, or they're going to send me to the sandbox if I do lose the weight. So that's how I'm being punished. That's what I was told because of the whole sexual assault event that took place a year and a half, two years prior, I was being punished because he was such a high up in the ranks. They didn't want me to do anything to hurt his abilities to be where he was at. So they're going to get you out of there. That's disgusting. So I kept thinking, what would I do? My husband was going to college at the time. He had one more class to finish the following spring. He had one class to finish. And we talked about it while I was off on maternity leave. And I said, you know what? I was wanting to be a lifer. I was 10 years, two months, and three days at that point. And I said, I'm going to get out on maternity. And I used the maternity as my exit. And I put the paperwork in while I was still on my maternity leave. And I went straight to the, uh, the head of the Air National Guard in California. And I got it approved. And like clockwork, I went back to work. I was approached by the commander in my unit, and they said, we're looking at sending you over to the sandbox for a three- to six-month tour, right out of the chute from having my daughter. Wow. And you know what I told the, the commander? I said, I don't know. I didn't know you didn't hear yet, but I'm getting out of the military. And it totally shocked them. They had no idea I had done the paperwork to get out of the military. So I reversed on them, and I was ahead of their game. And that must have felt so empowering to just have that moment after everything that you had been through. This is what I meant earlier when I said I came in idealistic and then I saw so many things. This is the kind of stuff that I I saw. Exactly. Like, and you go, how is this right? How is this happening? This is the United States military. It's supposed to be, well, what is it supposed to be? And then you just think of the, like the collective experience and potential that is lost you know like i wanted to be at 20 years you know you couldn't figure this out christina wanted to be 20 years like you how much did you lose how much did you invest in these women and then you lose it i mean when i was at tech school i remember a girl she had gone out and she she had dated so monterey the the it's a multi-service unit, the Presidio. And then there was also Fort Ord that was associated. The Fort Ord was there. That was the army, army post, but, uh, or Fort rather, but then they had the Presidio where you had all the branches and even the CIA and FBI went to the linguist school there. So that we had this one uh, young woman who was in Arabic with us. She was air force. 
and she uh she had dated an army guy and then um she was either out with him or out with somebody else and she was gang raped by five army guys now don't you know one of them was married so she got kicked out of the military for participating in sodomy and for what's it called when you're uh, when you're when you're married and you're having adultery. an affair or something? Adultery. Because it's so she got in trouble gay. for that. She got in trouble because they couldn't prove because from their perspective, she had dated one guy, therefore she was promiscuous, and they did, couldn't prove anything against these five guys. So they turned it all back on her. Mm-hmm. She intentionally permits intentionally participated in sodomy intentionally participated in you know infidelity or whatever you want to call it and then and her brain like what yes and she ended up getting out like the potential of this young woman you know and of course when something happened to me after watching what happened to her you think i'm gonna tell anybody (laughs) yeah i had that question for you i was gonna (laughs) ask you if you Mm -hmm. reported and no. but it's not it, like same thing Christina said. Absolutely not. What do you? You, you know, can't you give them anything to use against you. Mm-hmm. But no, you know when you no, have no. like I did, and it was happening in the public, and people saw right. it. It made it different for me because even my husband, I told him, "You have to be careful because this is my career, not yours." Yeah. And so he and and his dad was Air Force, and um, he, his grandfather's Pearl Harbor survivor lives three miles up the road from us, ninety eight years old. And so my husband, he understood and he was very respectful of that, but it made it really difficult for him for, especially me getting out because in part of speaking about that, when I said he had one semester, he had one class left for college, he walked away from that college degree to let me get out of the military because he applied for a job in Las Vegas that he got. And we actually moved, uh, two weeks after I got out of the military, we moved and picked up and moved to Las Vegas. So yeah. it was boom, boom, boom. So once I got those walking orders that I put through, I ended up getting out of the military. And and like Sheila said, I didn't speak about me even being a veteran or in the military. It was 94. I got some 94 through 2013 was the first time I ever mentioned to a lot of people I had ever been in the military. I never right. spoke of anything after that. I never, I tried to get help on my own. I never realized I could get it through the military so there were things like that, like what Sheila was saying. It's uh, there's nothing to transition you that told us what to do or or helped us. And yeah, that, yeah I mean, well, I see, I was talking to my husband. I, this young woman that this young marine that just came out on TikTok mm-hmm. a few days ago. Yes, this, yeah, I saw this that. young woman who's just this, you know, horribly distressed. Mm-hmm. And the, my first thought is, oh my god, she's going to get in so much trouble. And that's oh, yeah. horrible. And my husband's sitting next to me watching the thing saying, well, the courts, well, the law, well, this and that. Yeah. I'm like, you don't get it. You don't yeah. know. You don't get it. Like, she'll be out. She will be out. There's no way. You know, there's no, no. way they'll let her stay <laughs> in the Marines. No. Oh, no. No, so it'll be like a personality disorder. That's so oh, common. Yeah. If I and, had and that's a like, nickel that's what I told for him. every time. For every said, time. I said, she's talking about suicide. He's like, no, no, she's not. She's just talking about this. I said, no, no, no. You don't understand how the military will take that. You suicide comes out of your, comes out of your mouth. You're in psych, you know, like nobody's going to hear from her again. She's out. You know? It's that whole thing. If I was in the military, I'd tell them this. It's like, no, you wouldn't. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, no you idea. Would 
not and let him in there. That, I love that young women are are speaking out. I love that they're you know that we have campaigns that are saying no more. You know, for mm-hmm. Vanessa Guillen, you know, but Absolutely. we shouldn't have to sacrifice our careers. No, no we shouldn't. No, but it happens. Not. I oh, still it's think so common. Uh, but and I think it's benefit the military. But I think it's the best thing that young lady could have done was to put that video out. Mm-hmm. I, I still think it was a good thing that she did that because it oh, brings. I do. And like, but I, I do agree with you too, though. It's probably going to be the end of her military career. But it was great she did that because now all eyes are going to be on those guys at this point if anything happens to her. Mm-hmm. And and we can only hope that she's treated better and things are learned from it. Um, yeah. I mean, the idealistic side of me, of course. If I had a dollar for every time I interviewed a female veteran who told me um, they were going to be, they they intended to have a career in the military or that they didn't report because they saw what happened to someone else or a, a young woman who felt exactly like this girl. Like, I mean, it's just heartbreaking to me because it is so much squandered talent so much squandered ability, you know, that, that could be a benefit to our services, but we've got this outdated mentality of just sweeping things under the rug of protect, protecting the guy's career. And, and that sends all of these messages to these women, like, I don't matter. My career doesn't matter. I don't matter as a human being. And what am I doing here? Why am I here? You know, if you speak up against these guys that are harassing you, look what happens. Like the thing is, is um, you were assaulted in front of everybody. Right. And then when your husband stood up for your honor, he was met with aggression and he was put in a dangerous position and no one did anything about it. And now everyone knows that happened on the base, but no one higher up the chain does anything about it. And then look what happens, a whole embezzling situation and all of this stuff unfolds and they try to scapegoat you for it because Mm -hmm. you're not liked because you stood up for yourself. You're that girl now and nobody wants to be that girl. So Everybody just stays quiet and they're complacent. Yeah, and those last few years of my career really affect me even to this day because it was such a, oh, I just had to hurry and just do something to save myself. And 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 you you, were expecting that. And you just walk away with this feeling. It's a failure feeling. It's a failure feeling. You walk away, you know it. You know it's a failure. Exactly. because everything that you're taught is that if you can't control anything, that you're a failure. You you're taught that, and you know how. And how are you going to explain that when you come? What happens when somebody comes up and says, "Hey, Chris, why did you decide to get out of the military?" How are you going to explain that? And and it's funny. That how you am say I going to explain that I'm fat? Like I'm fat. Oh, why'd you mm-hmm. get out? You say you wanted to be in for twenty years. I don't know. I was fat. I couldn't control my body fat. Like. Mm-hmm. Bring that up because really when people ask me why I got out, they said you were over 10 years. I'm like, it's very complex. And that's pretty much all I can really tell them. It's very complex. A lot of things happened. Um, it was just a lot of stress at the time. It was the best thing I could have done for myself at the time. And I, and I don't regret having done it. I don't have any regrets at all. I would not go back, try to finish it. I think it was the best thing I could have done for me and my family. 
I think that there's this, you know, there's this culture that's come about in the last, I would say, maybe 10 years, if that, really five years, six years, maybe 10, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, the whole everybody thanking you for your service when they find out you're. Uh, Yes. I had had a horrible time with that. It's so incredibly awkward. It's so incredibly awkward. awkward. And uh, it took me actually seeing like my boss announced my military service to the other people on my team. And I'm like, I don't like, don't do that. That's so private. Don't do that. You know? And yet other people are so proud of their military service and they announce it everywhere. But I didn't get to be one of those people because of the way that I got out, you know? And then you have people come up and say, thank you for your service. And you're like, yeah, like, would you say that if you actually knew, like, you know, would you thank me for my service if you realized how I was treated or, if you realized what the military thought of me, because the military didn't think that highly of me or they wouldn't have kicked me out, you know, like there's this whole shift in the brain that goes on. I remember watching this commercial where this, it was like an older veteran that isn't dressed really in veterans clothes and and a young veteran who's still actively serving comes in and people are thanking the younger person and they're not thanking the older person. And then you see like his his uh, Vietnam tattoo or something. And mm-hmm. so the young active duty veteran walks out, but then he walks back in and then he thanks that man for his service. And that man turns around and where he was feeling um, like he wasn't being appreciated or being seen, he turns around and he says, thank you for your support. And I was like, oh, like it took hearing a commercial and seeing that for me to go, oh, okay, I can say thank you for your support. But I don't, I couldn't figure out how to answer that until then. Like, goodness, I could drop a tear over that. I mean, so upsetting for me personally um, to, because, you know, when we fly somewhere, right? And um, they're boarding the plane when we used to be able to fly places all the time right. um, without, without worrying about <laughs> yeah, yeah. getting sick. Right. So, right. Uh, <laughs> right? So we, we'd be waiting there in the airport and they'd go active duty personnel with your ID, you can board the plane and you're like a veteran. <laughs> and you're right. like, where's my props? <laughs> like, yeah. And I remember, yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time that, um, I was on Alaska airlines, by the way, and they did, they, I've been on the, that airline a couple of times and it didn't happen every time, but I think I was flying from St. Louis back to Oregon where I live. And, um, and they said, all veterans, now all veterans with your military ID, please pre-board the plane. And mm-hmm. I was like, I couldn't believe it. Like I was so yeah. like taken aback. I was, you know, I got almost choked up because it was that little, that little thing. It's like, once you do serve, you're so forgotten about, but you, what we went through, like what, what you endured. Like this is what I was thinking when you were talking, Sheila, I was like, you know, when people say thank you for your service you should receive that because it's not so much about what the military uh, thinks of you, but it's about what you experienced while you were serving. You put yourself, you volunteered because we, none of us here were drafted, right? So you volunteered your life and dedication of service to your country. And on top of that, this is what happened to you while you were doing it. You deserve every single person that you ever come across to say thank you for your service. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree with Sheila, though, too. It was hard for me as well 
I, I never even considered myself a veteran when I got out. I didn't know what I was. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was in limbo for the longest lot. time and, you know. It, t- it took my, ther- my therapist, really, as I was, as Christina and I were working on this magazine. And we were, you know, we talk about all kinds of stuff, you know, we go back and forth. And, and, and here I was saying, we have to get more women into the VA system. And I, I knew that the V like the VA system is not what women want to be in. If you have access to private care, you're never going to go sign up for the VA. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. It's not going to happen because I can fight with people, you know, in private health care and get good care. I'm lucky and fortunate enough to live on the East Coast with a lot of access. But I don't, you know, the VA has never been, the VA in, in New Mexico was very good to me. But I would never go to the VA in Philly if I had a choice to go to Jefferson Health, you know, or, or you know, some other, you know, mainstream place. So it was very interesting. And, and it took actually it took my therapist saying how can you advocate for other women if you don't think you deserve it that's true wow that's that how can you get a full true statement it it <laughs> it really is true she uh, you know she's like you think that these other women who serve deserve health care and you know that you like you need so many women to be in the VA healthcare system in order to purchase that MRI machine for breast cancer Mm-hmm. they're not going to purchase that machine for men, you know? So, mm-hmm. so you have to have, you have got to substantiate the numbers and, and we all know that we remember that use it or mm-hmm. lose it. Right. That's so you got to use it. You got to use it. So I was like, okay. So I, I went down and signed up for the VA healthcare and then I forced Serena, <laughs> Christina into <laughs> getting some extra care. Well, you know, like you have to do this, you have to do this. And, but it's, it was true. It took a therapist to say, you know, you, you can't, you cannot convince somebody else to do something that you don't think you're deserving of having. Yeah. That's so deep. And it, it, there's so much, I talk to a lot of female veterans who have this um, deep sort of, uh, of shame about mm-hmm. some aspect of their service or their service to, you know, something that happened to them, kind of like both of you, when they leave the service and they go, I'm distancing myself. And that's, and that's part of it. The care, um, the distrust of government services, uh, of everything after their experience, they go, they feel so um, abused and so um, taken advantage of and so disregarded and disrespected that they don't want anything to do with the government or government services such as VA healthcare. And so they don't utilize it. They end up homeless because they don't um, reach out for support or help or or any of these um, benefits that we are entitled to. And that's part of the reason how I landed doing this podcast because the 20 years preceding this, I would come across veterans that didn't know about using services or didn't know how to get their GI bill or didn't know, you know, different things that we were entitled to. And as I became aware, I would share that information with them. And it eventually led me down this path because it's so important for us to um, recognize that we matter. If, if no one's going to tell us, we have to tell each other. And we have to, you know, stand for each other and and help each other get what we deserve, what we what we what we serve for. We these yeah. these are our benefits. We deserve them. That's I'm, very I'm important. Laugh- for us to have each other's back. So mm-hmm. I'm laughing because uh, 
so Christina, Christina heard me yelling on Facebook for five years about the Legion, about the old boys club at the yeah. Legion. Probably every month I had some sort of a, a comment, an irritant, whatever, you know, that was, I was espousing on Facebook. And Christina finally said, why don't you stop complaining on Facebook and let's start a magazine? Because if you're angry that the American Legion is not representing you, then we just need to create our own space. And <laughs> because I was looking at the American Legion magazines and I was, you know, hanging out in the ca- canteen, you know, at the posts and stuff. And I'm like, where are the women? Where are the women? Like, why am I always being, you know, and I was angry. Oh, I was just, I was, and that was my beginnings of trying to reconcile. I think that I was a veteran and that, no, I am a veteran and I have a right to be in this space, mm-hmm. but it was still a very uncomfortable space, you know, sitting in the Legion with all the guys. And I can't tell those Vietnam stories. I didn't go overseas, you know, I don't have that story, Mm -hmm. you know, so there was, it was always such a conflict. And then I'm a, I'm more on the liberal side of politics. So there's extra conflict there, you know, right. And I just remember, and that's what Christina said, like, let's just create our own space, you know? (laughs) And I thought, oh, we can do that. (laughs) And that's amazing. Um, so, but before I do want to ask you a bunch of questions about the magazine and, and getting that going. But before I do, I want to ask you each a question about your transition out. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest obstacle you faced leaving the military? Um, my biggest obstacle was coming from that traumatic many years, you know, before I got out the, all that trauma that happened leading up to it and following my husband him leaving the school for me, me having a newborn, having my son as well. So I've got two kids. Uh, you know, my son, my husband went into the theater industry at that point. So we didn't see each other a lot. So there, even though he was always there and he always has been very supportive of me, we had such odd hours because he worked in the theater industry. So I had a really hard time just in general accepting myself and trying to figure out where I did fit in. Uh, figuring out how I was going to work, figuring out what I was worth, what I was worth, my worth. And and my worth to me was, uh, I, I knew what I did in the military, and I actually became an art director after three or four jobs the first year of getting out of the military. Um, I lied on my resume. I lied on my resume to get the art director job I got. And it worked. And I normally wouldn't do that. I'm actually honest to a fault. So it was really difficult for me to lie, but I did because I knew I could do it. I felt like I can do this. I I, I knew I had that in me and I was trying to find my worth. So I was offered originally a junior art director's position. And I said, no, I don't want the junior. I want the art director. I think I can pull it off. So they hired the other guy as the junior and I got the art director's position and then um and then i ended up in another company soon after because that company was moving to the east coast and i went into an art director position for a uh, a major publishing company in las vegas and i ended up with that position for 8 years and um i think the stability of that job and uh, my my supervisor who became my one of my best friends he's i i consider him my dad to this day he lives in las vegas still and we still keep in touch he's a grandfather to my kids and it's hard to believe I've become so close to a, a a supervisor, a man in my life who's affected me so positively like that. And 
it, it was great for me. So the transition was made easier through that job. But it really was a difficult time the first year getting out. I think I had four jobs. I was going to therapy. I had a really bad car accident a couple of months after getting out of the military. Um, my whole world was caving in that first year. The second year probably got a little bit better. And then uh, just kept moving forward and trying to figure out how to reinvent myself. And 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 I did. So I, I feel really happy with where I came from. But there's still the trials and tribulations and, and um, deprogramming still. Unfortunately, I'm 55 years old. And I mean, I got out in 94 and I still have deprogramming to do. I mean, that says a lot about how much is instilled in us in that short amount of time when you serve. So, you know, the trauma it carries through your life. Yeah, I, I'm, I did an interview. Um, and I think it was my season two with a... Um, a young lady named Tara. She was also in the Navy. And <clears throat> she said to me that she never told anyone she served because she was so harassed in her first year in, she ended up having a, like a breakdown and they discharged her. And mm -hmm. she was so um, depressed and suicidal afterwards for months and months and months. Thank God that she went home to her family and her parents made her eventually get up, take a shower, get herself together, you know, forced her to go to college. And she started on a different trajectory of her life, but it took her many years before she started getting therapy and help. And, and she could even ever tell anyone that she had ever served in the military because she was so ashamed that she only served one year. Right. But the trauma mm -hmm. of the experience of that 18 year old girl in the military for that one year lasted her entire rest of her life. Yeah. Wow. And that it just it infuriates bad. me, you know. Wow. Yeah, that happens, too. It yeah. Does. Yeah. And so it's not it. That's why I say if I had a dollar or an, even a nickel. For every woman that I spoke to, whether I we actually do an interview, because I speak to a lot of female veterans and we don't actually end up doing the interview sometimes, but we have a phone conversation and we connect and they share their story with yeah. me in private. And um, it's just, it's heartbreaking for me to see what we can um, endure and have to go through and how long it takes for us to even begin on a path of recovery sometimes yeah. really heartbreaking mm -hmm. yeah and and one other thing though but getting at therapy too when I did see a therapist when I got out it was one of those things where I stopped seeing the therapist because they tried to convince me that my issues stemmed from my current husband at that time which was my husband now and mm -hmm. I never understood that and I think it's all because they didn't understand the military model they didn't understand yeah. and, and so so it's one of those things right now that um I personally, I don't usually talk about this, and I know this is going to go out to a lot, but I'm looking to go to therapy right now, and I'm having a really hard time mentally wrapping my brain around that because I want to find somebody who can comprehend what a military woman goes through and what's what she's doing to try to get better and, and to get this stuff out of her head. And I mean, I'm 55 years old, and it's been going on for so long. Is it really possible to fix me, I guess you would say? Um, you know, and I think we're all broken in, in different ways. And, and I know I'm broken, but after having been to that therapist so far back, 
and them do what they did to me. And I still remember sitting outside in front of their office and my husband's saying, you got to go in. I'm like, I can't. And he's questioning me. Why aren't you going in? I said, because they're trying to blame this on you. You know, this is a man I had been married to for two years at that time. And they're trying to blame almost 10, seven years worth of military trauma on my marriage to my husband for two years. And, and I didn't want to tell him this, but it's one of those things that I don't understand where the, the therapist was coming from when she was trying to blame him because it was nothing that he did that was bad in my life at all. And it, it was just very, that was traumatic too. So it makes it difficult for us to find a therapist who can completely understand us and where our minds are at. So that's one of those things I'd love to really dig into, you know, moving forward with our magazine. I'd like to find out how do you do that? How do you mentally get over that? How do you find somebody who works for you? So, Especially you know. at this age. How do you, like, you know, it it's, may sound ageist, but I'm probably not going to go to a 20 year old therapist. My therapist is my, is my therapist is my mother figure practically, you know, she's, uh, she's probably in her sixties and I'm 46 and, you know, she fills up all the holes, you know, that I never got filled when I was a kid. And, and she asks those probing questions about like, how does the military work? You know, but then she could like, she's able to sort of uncog the wheels in the mind to say, you know, that, that, that thing that you learned in the military served you well when you needed to survive in it. Yeah. But it might not be serving you very well right now in this yeah. in this life that you're trying to survive. And I think mm-hmm. that I go, oh, oh, okay. So that so it's okay that I learned it then. And there's a reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now because it's what I learned and it's logical, completely logical. And and now we might have to learn a new coping skill that's gonna help mm-hmm. us better in the civilian yeah. world. And then I'm like, oh, oh yeah. okay, that makes sense. I can try that, you know. But she really has to has to work on the mechanics because you know we are programmed a certain way. I'm programmed to be very cut and dried and tell you like it is, and, and that comes across as very harsh and rude in the corporate world. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. I just did a workshop with for female veterans um, with the Barbara Giordano Foundation, um, and we had a panel and we were talking about adapting to corporate mm-hmm. careers after the military, which is what I specifically had a hard time doing yeah. um, when I got out of the military. It was one of those things I had to take being a veteran off my resume for a long time to even get an interview, um, mm-hmm. and then when I'd get into a corporation, I would hate it. Every single one of them, except the last two that I worked with, I just yeah. didn't enjoy the environment. I didn't understand the people. They said they didn't have the same dark humor or they didn't have the same, um, you know, wor- verbiage and, and yeah. camaraderie. And I mean, even though there, you can have some very um, uncomfortable experiences while you're serving in the military, if you're fortunate enough to get into some groups of friends, you can find a community that's actually really beautiful. And so, like I will always say, my military experience was amazing. It was really good until the day that it wasn't. And up until then, I had sort of a family there and everyone felt like we were brothers and sisters. And, um, And when I went into the corporate world, that was just not the case. Everyone was for themselves. Nobody was, you know, mission focused really. Or in a way, in the way that I was, and right. or a team, a team player, right? Even if you were on a team, 
it seemed like everybody was out for themselves. Like it just was not a good fit for me. And I had thought the military wasn't a good fit for me because (laughs) I, when people ask me why I got out of the, out of the military, I tell them, cause I was a hippie. (laughs) Like, I was like, I didn't belong there in the first place. I just, you know, my mom said, you're doing this. And I was like um, a classic people pleasing child, like middle child, girl child. Oh, yeah. And I was like, okay, mom, I'm going to do what you want because this is going to make you happy. And I, and I did it. Um, I, she wanted me to go to the army. I chose the Navy. So I rebelled a little bit. Right. But, um, I, I had this sort of, um, this way about me. And I was really just this really happy-go-lucky sort of hippie, new age hippie. It was the mid nineties, new age hippie sort of grunge girl who went into the military and really didn't belong there. And I will tell you for probably the first three years, I'd pass by a window or a mirror and see myself in uniform and not know who it was for a second. Like it was like such a shock even to me. So that's what I tell people when they ask me why I got out. And I say, Pretty much from the first day I went in, although I did consider staying in for a little bit of time when I first got to the pharmacy, but pretty much I knew I was getting out. It was a means for me to secure the GI Bill so I could go to college, which was what my real dream had been of my own dream. If I could have just said, hey, mom, no, I'm going to college, right? But I couldn't do that. And I think um, something else you said, Sheila, was really amazing as well. And it's about the the um, coping skills, the survival mechanisms that we develop while we're serving. And, 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 and you may have them from childhood if you had a dysfunctional household or I'm, I'm a child abuse survivor. So I developed coping mechanisms as a child and then developed even different ones in the military. And then you suddenly come out of all of those environments and realize those coping mechanisms that kept you safe are no longer necessary. And so it's a whole process of trying to figure out how to shift that and how to come out of that and how to function in a whole different way. And finding a good therapist, I can't say enough, is so helpful for that because um, sometimes it's trial and error, Christina, that you just go to one. I've had several and some, there's been some that have said one thing to me and I'm like, I'm never coming back here again. Like that's that's a no, you know what I mean? Just like, so trying to insinuate that your husband was the problem. I totally feel that I would have been like, okay, we're out of here. We're never coming back here. I got to figure out who I can go see. And, um, fortunately I don't interview a lot of men, but I did interview some of them. They have to be pretty special. And so, um, I interviewed uh, a gentleman named Ellsworth. And he runs an organization, which I love to highlight organizations that are helpful for veterans or they do alternative um, therapies for veterans who Mm -hmm. are suffering in some way. And um, he runs an organization called um, Veterans Counseling Veterans. And so I would love to give you his information because I think it's so important and um, He's on a previous episode, so you can also find it if you look in the show notes um, for the podcast. But I can, I would love to include his information on this episode as well, since we were talking about um, uh, therapy, because these people in his network, he has so many people in his network, and um, many of them are veterans. And sometimes you just need a brother or sister that uh, understands what you've been through and to be able to help you 
in your, your therapeutic setting. Yeah. So maybe that's something that could be useful for you in your journey. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Of course. So, um, Sheila, do you want to talk more about your transition out? Um, so my, I don't, I had a difficult transition mainly because probably because I was so hostile and angry about getting out to begin with. And, um, and I just wanted to be away from it. But the main thing that I remember is going from, you know, essentially having everything paid for you, you know, living in base housing, you know, having your food stipend, having, you know, truly being, having those things cared for and not having any concept of what it costs to live on the outside and like any type of savings, anything like that. And those were skills that I did not learn as a kid. They were skills that I didn't learn in my hometown. And they were, and I was 17 when I went in, I turned to 18 in basic training. So I didn't learn those at all until I got out. And then when I got out, I ended up in, got out in February. Uh, by August, I was living in a, a really rundown trailer with my husband at the time. And we were, we were poverty level. And I, and I ended up pregnant. I ended up working for $2.14 an hour as a waitress after having had a job in the military as a base photographer, which comes with its own, you know, sort of PR type perks, you know, and stuff. Uh, So that was really difficult. And, And I chose not to have a child while I was in the military, but there was a dichotomy that was going on at the time, which was coming from a household and also coming from the military that says, A, don't have children unless you can afford them. And then B, being in a situation of not being able to afford children. And then, you know, and then, you know, what do you do? What do you do? Like, you can't even, you can't even survive a pregnancy unless you have prenatal pills, unless you can go to a doctor for prenatal care. And I lived in rural New Mexico. I lived 30 miles outside of Albuquerque. So, and on a waitress's wage, like I, I would go to work and end up coming home with less money than I went to work for because accounting is not my strong suit. Dealing with men drinking in bars that call you honey, baby, sweetheart, when you just got out of the air force is not something that I'm familiar with. (laughs) So I wasn't a very good waitress. Yeah. It, it, it didn't serve any of my needs. And then, um, after, um, I chose to have an abortion after I made that decision. I that's when I actually started going to the military because I was having um, heart palpitations that I had had before I got out and ended up having to have heart surgery. The VA did that for me. And then they had just created a women's center there. And I had a wonderful woman who was my like VA female person who she got me on birth control. I told her I never wanted to have another abortion. So like, what do we have to do here? I wanted a full hysterectomy at 23. (laughs) I I was 23 when I got out or 22. I was very young. So she, she had to guide me, you know? So there's a, you know, there's a support system that we talk about because we think that people in, in the military are adults. And I think that a lot of times we're not. When you take a young person, a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old, and you take them directly out of their home, you stagnate their growth into, like, you had to do everything your parents taught you were right 
And then you go into the military and you have six weeks of, of indoctrination or programming, whatever training you want to call it, that teaches you now this is the way the world must exist. Mm-hmm. And it's almost stagnant in a way that when you come out of the military, you don't really understand the world the way other people understand it. So you don't, you don't know how to pay the electric bill or, or you know pay this or pay that. Maybe some people do, but I did not have those life skills. So I don't know. Um, I didn't know how I didn't I didn't even know what healthcare was. I knew that serving in the military got me health care. Working as a waitress, I didn't know how to go see a doctor. Yeah, and I, I had seriously no clue whatsoever how to survive outside the military. Yeah. And I think that that's it's a transition piece that maybe some people don't need, but I certainly needed it. You know, 17 year old going in the military, I didn't know nothing. And I grew up in a town of 2000 people in the middle of absolutely nowhere. So, you know, maybe I'm the exception being such a rural kid and not having a concept, but I don't know that that's true. When you take, when you take very young, young people, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I have a, I am sort of of the opinion that I don't know that very young people should be going in the military. Yeah. Yeah. My thought process has changed. The yeah. older that I get, I almost see it as a, a you know, almost predatory in a way. I, I almost mm-hmm. feel like maybe people need to be a little bit older before they can make that decision. Maybe you should be 21 before you decide to go in the military. I don't know. I, I, I'm conflicted over a lot of things sure. like that, you know. I don't That's know. Great. I mean... You're taking for not everybody feels this way and not everybody reacts this way. And it's not everybody's experience. But for those of us who don't have alternatives, I feel like it can be predatory. I think so. I mean, and then you, you add in certainly not every recruiter lies, but certainly mm-hmm. enough of them have done in the past, we'll say. And you add that in to an 18 year old kid and I mean, certainly my recruiter sort of steered me away from going ROTC towards enlisting. Well, he had a quota to fill, right? Right. So, I mean, I mean, certainly I've heard lots of stories, you know, in in my discussions with females. So I think it can. It's an interesting perspective when you really sit back in and think about that. It is. It can be a bit predatory. Yeah. I mean, I, of course, you know, of course I felt I had opportunities. Of course I learned things. Of course I have positive experiences, but I, I just, it's something that I think about more the older I get. And when I see what a 17 year old looks like yeah. and I, and I think, you know, if they had the opportunity to go to college, would they be taking that opportunity without having to sacrifice their, their life and their body and their mental spirit? And some people come out ahead and some people don't, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I um, think um, I, certainly I can only speak for myself, but I do think that a lot of young people, when they go into the military, they don't actually um, realize the gravity of it. At least I served during peacetime. Like I came in, I'm a desert storm vet. So I am a combat veteran, but I came in at the end. So everyone was mm-hmm. moving we were transitioning out. And um, so the bulk of my service was during peacetime, maybe the last peacetime we may see, who knows, right? Um, in our lifetime. 
but it was, and now I used to be so sort of ashamed of that. Like I didn't see any action. Mm -hmm. Right. But now I'm like, Hey man, I got, I have an experience that all of these people behind me don't have any idea about. Right. Right. And, um, and I think that, you know, it can be, it can be really, really difficult for these kids when they don't understand that what they're doing is putting their lives on the line. Like you can, yeah. it, you can say it, but really feel that. Right. Like you're, yeah. you're 18. Can you, can, do you really understand it? 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, that what you are about to do could end your life. And I think maybe it depends on what type of education and what your exposure was, but do you really understand the machine that you're going into also? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a machine. Uh, I thought that, you know, and, and this is where I have a difficult time with other veterans, you know, in veterans organizations is I didn't go in to go kill Iraqi people. I didn't go in after 9-11 cause I was concerned about things going on in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. I went in after Kuwait because I felt like if Kuwaitis wanted their freedom, well, we should let them have their freedom. I was going to be a benevolent, you know, 17 year old white girl going to save the world <laughs> right. in the Middle East. You know, I mean, I was going to bring freedom to everybody because that's what we valued. And, you know, my thought process about how that war kind of came about and what happened is vastly different. And I do think my father probably understood it much better than I did because he was a Vietnam veteran. You know? mm-hmm. Oh, for yeah, sure. And, and to add to that, you know, I, I put my hand up when I was 17. I put my hand up November of 83. I was 17 years old. Well, actually, not November, uh, September, July, August. It was like July or August of 83. And mm-hmm. I'm still 17. I turned 18 in September that year. And, um, and then, of course, I went in that following March. But the reason I didn't go to college right out of high school is because I, of all people, I thought you had to be invited to go to college. This is how naive I was. I was extremely oh, so same town that I grew up in. Is that what you're exactly. trying to say? <laughs> exactly. And of course, my dad was the county. Uh, he was the the county commissioner for for Sierra County. You know, he was the chief of police there at one point. He was a uh, he was in the guard. He was a retired army general in 2011. And and of course, that's why I joined the Air Force because he was Air Army. And <laughs> but um, it's one of those things that you know I didn't know you could go to college. I thought you had to be invited. And it was like, well, I didn't know what else I was going to do. I was working at McDonald's out of high school. I'll join the military. I'll surprise my dad and join the military. I'll follow in his footsteps. And that's kind of what I did. I mean, I yeah. did it because I saw that my dad was doing it. And that's what I thought I had to do. And he was a jag, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Well, my, my dad said you, like, I mean, it was very clear. You either have to get good enough grades to get a scholarship. Or you go find a job, but either way, you're out. You know, (laughs) when you turn 18, you're out. So I thought that I had to get a scholarship, you know, and when when a scholarship is on the table and you're a B student, you know, (laughs) I don't don't know how that works, you know. And back then, we didn't have, I see kids now, they get into like ninth grade and they're planning to get into what college they're doing Mm -hmm. their their projects and incredible things. It's so uh, competitive. I didn't yeah. have that back then. Uh, we didn't yeah. have any of that. No, no, no. <laughs> the ASVAB was like, okay, take the ASVAB, see if you can get in the military or go work at McDonald's. 
Yeah, exactly. But but get out. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's not a joke. My mom, I said, I remember being um, a sophomore and I was at private school in Hershey, Pennsylvania from the East Coast. Oh, yeah. And um, and I, I said, mom, it's time for me to pick out colleges. We got to start applying next year. It was the summer between 10th and 11th grade. And I remember, I will never forget. I think I said this on here before. She said to me, who do you think is going to pay for that? She wasn't talking about college. She meant to apply, like just any of that. She was like, I don't have money for that. And anyway, you're going to the military. Any child of mine that is healthy and able-bodied is going to serve their country. Well, my mom had wanted to serve in the army, but um, she had a lot of kids young and she had a window of time in her late thirties where she could have gone, but she got pregnant with my little brother. Best thing that ever happened to me, unfortunately <laughs> ended her aspirations of going into the military because she aged out that year. Wow. So, um, of course, wow. when it came to me, so my older brother went to the army and I chose the Navy and I just knew it. Like I didn't even take, I, I took the pre SAT. I didn't take the SATs. I just was, like I know I'm taking the ASVAB. That's it. I'm off. Off I go. So I um I knew I had to get out, but I was happy. I was super happy to get on my own at 18. And I had my first apartment at 19. And I learned a lot of hard life lessons because I didn't know much. I took a, a life skills math class my senior year of high school, instead of taking whatever calculus or trig or something I was supposed to take, I opted out because I had enough credits and I took an elective class and I took this life skills math class that saved my life, which is like kind of what you were talking about, Sheila, like not knowing how to balance your checkbook or pay bills or anything. And it taught me that. So I was a little bit more prepared, but a lot of kids aren't. A lot of kids really aren't. And, um, especially young women who, um, who come to me and say, Hey, Oh, what was the military? Like, do you think I should go in That's Another reason why this podcast exists so that they can listen mm-hmm. to these episodes and hear what right. we experience as women and make an educated decision from the real stories of women who actually served, because right. it's important to know what you're getting into. So that brings me to my next question for you guys. I know I've taken up a lot of your time, so we'll wrap it up soon. I promise. Um, very enjoyable. Thank <laughs> oh, you. I'm glad you're having fun. Yay. Thank yes. you. Yeah, um, really so uh, it's always a good time when us veteran sisters get together. I don't know. I never have a bad time. So <laughs> it's always a good time. Um, but my next question for you is, you know, after you got out of the military, you transitioned out and you had to f- sort of figure your life out and go down your path. You were talking about um, going to the American Legion. And I, I actually was a member of the American Legion for a while in Chicago when I lived there. And it was such a boys club. And I remember my, um, my ex-husband, um, he used to come with me there and they used to love him to hang out there even more than me. And, and mm-hmm. a lot of the guys that would come in would assume he was the veteran and that it was yep. sweet that he'd bring his wife oh, God. <laughs> um, yep. Yep. drink at the bar with him. Right. Yep. <laughs> so tell me, what was your experience like with the Legion? And let's talk more about the, the evolution of Avow. So for me, the Legion, uh, somebody encouraged me to go join. And this is, I lived up uh, by Philly and uh, Glen Olden. My hometown. And, uh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, somebody encouraged me to go in, and I walked into the Legion. 
And of course, the first thing the gentleman said to me was, uh, so your husband served. So you're, no, he said, so you're here to join the auxiliary. And I looked at him and I said, you know, women have been serving in the military for about 50 years now. And again, blunt attitude, you know, from the service. And he actually handled it very well. He took a breath, took a double take, and he became a close friend of mine for quite a while. So I joined, but the problem was I was so much younger than everybody else who was there because they, they were all Vietnam veterans, which is really two generations ahead of me. And um, well, one to two, I figure my dad's a generation, but still. So um, they, um, all of the women thought that I was there to pick up an older man, you know, pick up a widowed man. And I got a lot of flack from that. And uh, then the gentleman knew that I was on the liberal side. And I think I was the only person in there who was. And uh, so then they would wait until they got a few beers into them. And then they would start talking to me about politics. And I am not very good at backing down at a political discussion or any discussion for that matter. So uh, we would end up in arguments all the time. And I just, it just became, it just ended up being so conflicted. So I decided to, I had bought a motorcycle. I had gone through a divorce. So um, got a motorcycle and I wanted to become one of the American Legion riders. So I went to a different post that had a motorcycle group with them. And my first visit to that post, it was supposed to be, they were going to talk and see if they wanted to invite me in. And it was their first motorcycle meeting. Well, there was a very drunk man sitting at the counter. And um, he was very drunk. He was screaming and yelling about how the entire country went to hell in a handbasket when they gave women the right to vote. And that um, we made all of the decisions with our uh, hearts instead of with our minds. And that's why at the time Barack Obama was in office. And that was why we had this horrible human being in office. And he used some choice words. And I must have glared him down because he paid attention at some point that I was sitting right across from him. And the bartender, now, I don't know how familiar you are with the legions, but in the legion, the bartender is actually, if the commander isn't there, the bartender can kick people out. They can do whatever they need to do. So the bartender was there and it was a woman and she was attempting to mitigate the situation, which did not work well for me. So she's like, oh, simmer down, you know, like watch your language. Which for me is like, I'm not here to ask you to watch your language because I am not a wilting flower over in the corner. I'm here to have you watch your attitude because I have as much respect to be here as you do. Like I have every right. And, and the, the Legion is supposed to be nonpartisan. We are not supposed to be talking about politics and things in the Legion. Right. And um, so the gentleman that was with him was trying to get him to calm down. And then he recognized that there was a woman sitting across from him. And then he attempted to buy me a drink. And I said, absolutely not. And then I went into the meeting and I described what had happened. I said, do you realize that this is how you're welcoming young women motorcycle riders who are veterans? This is the welcome that I just received. So that didn't go very well. And I didn't, I didn't mesh very well with them uh, politically or figuratively or age-wise or experience-wise, but I knew that I had a right to be there. 
And, and I didn't know of any other place to go. Like, you know, they have AMVETs, but if I could be in the Legion, what do I want to be in the AMVETs for? Right. Cause we still have the hierarchy after we get out and I didn't go overseas. I wasn't in a war zone, so I can't be part of the BFW. I am not disabled at the time, so I couldn't be a part of the DAV and I wasn't disabled through military service somewhere. So I'm not going to go try to swap stories with those guys anyway. I can't get in there. So the Legion was my place. And um, then I ended up moving and I moved to where I live now in Bethlehem. And I had started dating my husband. So this was probably like two years of conflict at two different Legions down in the Philly area. And then I moved out here to Bethlehem. And my husband said, uh, we were dating at the time. He said, why don't you join the Legion out here? Because we were both motorcycle riders. So I transferred out here and I, I'm thinking maybe it'll be just a little different, but it hasn't been. And, um, and in fact, at this post, there was an incredible amount of hostility and th- with the riders that I felt. And I was younger. I was trying to help out with social media. I was trying to, you know, I was trying to give in and say, hey, let's take pictures. Let's do this. Let's do that. Because, you know, we know that these posts are dying out because they can't get these younger members in because I think that I think sometimes because the Vietnam veterans had such a difficult experience that it is hard for them to accept that we didn't and that we're okay. And and there's a meshing that doesn't happen there. And I think that there are so many younger veterans, younger than me, that are not interested in being at the Legion because, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're interested in going on hikes. They're interested in picking up trash. They're in- interested in other community activities and the whole sort of like bar scene, right. that military structure that still exists within the Legion is not something that they are interested in being a part of. Not everybody. But that's what I see. And I fit into that group. I, I already did my time in the military. I don't want to go to a meeting where I got to salute somebody again. Right. I just don't. You know, I, I want to mm. be comfortable. And they were so hostile. I ended up writing a letter about the hostility. I ended up, I am still a member, but I don't go to any meetings. Um, I've had them get angry at me because they wanted me to post something on their Facebook page. I'm not just talking about the writers, but where they wanted me to post something on their Facebook page that was inaccurate. And I said, no, I'm not doing it. It's, it's political inaccuracy. And um, I just ignore it. I don't even say, it. I just pretend like I didn't see it. You know? <laughs> but I shouldn't have to do that. you know. Yeah. And so right now, my only activity there is with their honor guard. And I have to say that their honor guard is really wonderful. And they've done a really good job of trying to accept a young woman into their space because you know to them they do see me as a veteran but they do also see me as a young woman and these are uh the majority of them are very gentlemanly men if i let them know that they are out of line they step back you know they, one of them make an off-color joke and i'll turn around and, and flip back and say something they stop and and they so they they've done a very good job of welcoming me but i i've joked to christina about it and i've said you know the only place that I seem to fit is, you know, giving funeral services for dead veterans because they don't have a problem with who I am. Wow. And that's kind of sad. You know, it's Mm -hmm. kind of sad. It is. And, and, you know, 
they opened up their doors to AMVETS for a reason because they used to look down on AMVETS. You know, AMVETS was anybody from any war or no war that could come in, but the Legion, you still had to be in during a time of war mm-hmm. or during a time of, con- you know, you still had to have that conflict, that war on that 214. They do not have enough members to support that anymore. It's and, sad. They were, and they were very hostile toward, uh, like I was a member of the ladies auxiliary. The ladies auxiliary was very hostile toward allowing men. So now they are the auxiliary. And I actually had to have a, a conversation with the president of the auxiliary and say, look, you know, I'm, I'm a woman veteran. My husband is not a veteran. Mm-hmm. Where does he, where can he go? He can't, if he didn't have a, like the sons of the American Legion only care if your father or your grandfather or your uncle was in the military, then you can get in. If you don't have military lineage, but your wife served, that don't matter. They're only concerned about men's military lineage. So he can't be in the sons if he didn't have that history. He could not be in the, in the women's auxiliary because he wasn't a woman. He can't be in the main legion. He can only be my guest in the riders. So when the women's auxiliary just changed that uh, October before last, now they accept men in. And there was a lot of hostility. And it was, we've been our own organization. We've been the number one veteran service organization support, women's support for these organizations for 100 years. These men are now coming in and taking something away from us. And I said, no, like, no, no, you're, I'm the veteran. You're helping my husband. My husband who might want to give back. My husband who might want to make goody trays for veterans overseas or stuff stockings. Like, what organization does he have to help? Yeah. If he's not a veteran himself. So the it's going through a lot of change. There's a lot of change. But that's my experience. And some people have great experiences. Uh, but it, it hasn't been mine. But I do like the honor guard. Yeah, I had I had a great I had a great time for the most part um, with the American Legion. In fact, <clears throat> I actually quit the Legion because my husband was having too much fun. Yeah, as part as my guest when I wasn't there. <laughs> right. So, um, but anyway, um, so I definitely I like the organization when like it's like a, a base. You know, you get a, mm-hmm. a really good base, and you can get one that's not so great, right? So yeah, there's I, one I, in Philly that I really like. Chapter three in Philly is wonderful. Those guys are awesome. There's yeah, you know, not that our guys aren't awesome. That's but I just haven't. I've been to three different ones and I just haven't fit in well at either one. I don't know. Maybe it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe it's outdated thinking. So, and and it sounds like from what you were saying, the women's auxiliary. Well, I mean, we are, we always talk about the guys and we give them a hard time, but check out how those chicks were behaving. Right. Same outdated thinking, but different. So it's it's an interesting dynamic. I, I actually had to say like your motto is to serve. So who are you serving uh-huh. by not allowing not allowing spouses that are male in here? If you're if your motto is to serve the veteran, I'm the veteran. You know? I don't know. It it Absolutely. was just it was interesting. It was interesting. So and it's just growing pains. You know, there's a lot of history there and they've done a lot of good. So I would like to see them succeed, but they're gonna have to work at it. 
It's just like everything with the, the actual um, military itself. These changes have to filter down from the top and they have to change. And then perhaps, you know, we, we you know, bang on a, a enough doors. We do enough protests and advocacy and, mm-hmm. and make people aware. And you start to see these changes. Maybe we can see, you know, military sexual trauma and sexual harassment and this misogyny and stuff get less and less and less. But it's going to take time because it's like hundreds of years of this type of mentality. That needs right. to evolve, right? Yeah. And we see it right. here, an, an example of both male and female organizations where the the thinking needs to become more progressive, right? Yeah. And and so, being that they have their magazine, you guys decided to start a vow from the fact that of underrepresentation for females. Uh, yeah, Christina. So, <laughs> so, so basically, I do remember the conversation that Sheila and I were having, and she was complaining about, you know, oh my gosh, we're opening these magazines and we never see any women in them. And oh my gosh, I found a magazine that's got one page of a, it's got one female on it. And, and you know, I, I still remember a lot of those conversations we had, and it probably went quite a while before we actually. Uh, put our fist down and, you know, uh, and said, hey, let, let's just do this. Um, I was actually laid up from an accident I had a couple of years ago and I told Sheila, I'm going to do it. We have to just do it. I said, this is a good time for me. I don't know about you, but I I think we should just move forward and go ahead and do it. So, uh, we were both really receptive at the same time, our stars aligned. Uh, and basically we started throwing names around. We, uh, we liked a vow because it's a vow we took. Um, and I'll be frankly honest with you. The AVOW is a primary to the secondary of American veteran organization, uh, for women. We are not an organization. We are a magazine. We didn't want to just use the acronym because people were going to be asking, well, what does a vow stand for? So, the secondary was what it stands for. That's not really the name of the magazine, though. The name is a vow. And, and the the meaning of it is actually not as important as a vow is. A vow is the most important as far as the magazine goes. So that is what we go by is a vow. It doesn't have to be broken out into a name. And, uh, you know, I think it probably took us a week of kind of pondering with different names and how important that would be for people and, and the attraction to the, to whoever's reading the magazine. Uh, Cause we really wanted to have it to be a celebration of diversity for, for women veterans. And, and it, and that's what we're trying to do with it. It is the celebration of our diversity, diver, excuse me, diversity. And we're, we're not singling out anybody. We're, we're there for everybody. We're, we're an end all be all for everybody. It's, it's a conglomerate. And, uh, we just felt that it was a good time to start. And we, we just, and it's funny, I'm trying to remember it's been so long now it's, it's been a while and we're trying to, to just figure out things. We kind of threw the first issue together. I will say that it was kind of thrown together, uh, design wise, article wise. We kind of, we knew what we wanted to do, but it's a matter of just getting everything to jive and Sheila and I working together for the first time and figuring it out. Um, we knew who we wanted to work with, uh, and, and 
we contacted people we knew, both of us did, and said, hey, we're doing a magazine. Would you like to be an advisor? Would you like to be involved with this? And um, we chose purposely not to be a nonprofit because as a nonprofit exists, it, it has to have a certain um, uh, affiliation as a nonprofit organization to be political. And we chose not to be a nonprofit because we wanted to be able to have those deep stories and to have any political discussions if we choose to have those in our magazine and to not be, oh, look, you're a nonprofit. You're not allowed legally to do that. We didn't want to stifle ourselves or the people who are writing for our magazine. We wanted to be able to open that dialogue up. So that's one of the main reasons why we're not a nonprofit. And we've been real fortunate that people haven't asked that. At first they did. Are you a nonprofit? No, we're not. And there was no reason for us to be. We wanted to make sure that we were open for everybody. Um, and so that's kind of how, I mean, in a nutshell, that's kind of how we got started. It's, uh, I don't know that it's much deeper than that, except for, you know, me seeing Sheila get upset and her and I had always wanted to work together. And, um, yeah, I, I just, I'm having memory, you a foggy brain trying to figure out where it was, where we started and what really got us on the road. But that's kind of the main thing of what she was telling you is that we, you know, she was complaining about the American Legion. And probably the VA too, a little bit. The VA. And and the and the motorcycle groups that I get involved in. I'm still trying to get her to design me a, a round logo so that I can get other women to be in a motorcycle group with me for a vow, you know? <laughs> so it's amazing. I have had some guests on here that ride bikes. I mean, yeah. I bet you there are people who might be listening right now that would be interested in in joining a group like that. You know, I think that there are probably a lot because I do think that military women are very adventurous in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I have met quite a few motorcyclists who are are veterans. And, you know, the, the Legion group, rider group, I, I, I like it, but it, some groups work for me, some don't, you know. But uh, even like uh, Harley was a, I was a member of a couple Harley groups. And, and that is the, definitely still the old boys club. So that doesn't work for me either. Their magazines didn't didn't you know represent me. So I did a whole thing about you know maybe twenty like percent representation, ten percent representation, and it was a woman holding a Monster Energy drink. And I said <laughs> this is not acceptable representation for women motorcyclists. So I you know and that's I keep hitting Christina up about it, and sooner or later I'm going to just wear her down, and she's going to say, "All right, here's the design for your patch. Go let go get your motorcycle." <laughs> club together (laughs) well i i just want to say if anybody's listening right now who rides bikes and they want to join up like send us a message or check out a vow and um send them probably need four members (laughs) four (laughs) members to start (laughs) see only four i bet you there's so many more out there and um because you know the one of the best things about being a female veteran is that there we're so diverse we have so many different interests and activities some of us are writers, playwrights, artists, dancers, singers, like we do everything. So mm-hmm. it's great when we can come in support of each other and, and create a new group. So it'd be amazing. Well, I think I was looking in the wrong place for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think Christina really helped me with that because so September before last, I got the opportunity as somebody writing for the magazine 
and also as a female veteran myself to go on one of those uh it's a what's it called it's a flight they put the everybody honor on flight. a bus the honor the honor, honor flight honor flight where they took us from Philly down to DC and they showed us like all the memorials and the women's memorial and stuff and it was it was the third in the country and the first for Pennsylvania it was a bus full of all women veterans I've never seen so many w- women veterans in my life. It's amazing. And I didn't know that we existed. I didn't know they were so, like, I just knew me and Christina and one lady over at the Legion. And it really taught me that I was, I was fighting so hard in men's space to create space for myself in there. And I didn't, re- and I was trying to be friends and I was trying to do this and it just wasn't working. And then that honor flight, being on that bus with all those women, it was like, wait a minute here's my space. I found it. Mm-hmm. They exist. So Imagine. these women do exist. They exist in our magazine. They exist, you know, on your podcast that, you know, and it's making those connections. Where are those groups? Well, you know, Melissa Washington's group, you know, these groups do exist. VR is one of our um, advisors. She's connects us with all kinds of people. So I just wasn't looking in the right place. I was trying so hard to to fight to fit in there because I had a right to be there that I didn't even realize that there was a whole group of women that was waiting for me somewhere else to come walk through the door, if that makes sense. And I have truly been uplifted once I started connecting with the right people. And that was women. It's not that there's not conflict at times, but, but it is true. I'm finding that my space is over here with these people. And I just didn't know it. I didn't know it. I didn't know it existed. So that's funny you say that because I feel the same exact way. I didn't really have any female friends when I got in the military, mm-hmm. but then when I joined in the, the early eighties, early to mid eighties, it's one of those things. I didn't even think about the fact that I won't consider myself a trailblazer because I wasn't. But at that point in the eighties, there wasn't a lot of women in the military either. There, there weren't a lot of us at all. And yeah. so I look at that and I think, you know, because I actually had somebody ask me, well, don't you have any female friends from being in the military? I said, well, you know, I've got probably, mm, I would say at the point before I met a bunch of people in 2013, I maybe had two or three really good friends from the military who were who were women. And other than that, that was it. I didn't have any. I didn't socialize with the women in the military. It's not something I did because women in the military were so big on making sure they were safe, making sure that they were having their own back, making sure that, oh, look, this guy's protecting me and you're another female and you're probably going to take him away from me. I can't have you around. And so that was my mentality Mm -hmm. too. I hung out with guys. I played on the men's basketball teams. All of my trophies when my husband met me are all with men on them because I played men's basketball. I played on a women's basketball team in the military and um, it was just the one time. And then I played another men's team. I played at George Air Force Base and they asked me to quit because I was first string and I was making more points than a lot of the guys. But they said, because they weren't playing, they wanted me to quit, but there wasn't a women's team available. So I ended up walking. So, so I didn't, like you said, trying to find a space to fit in. And I've always been, well, why can't I play basketball with the guys? Mm -hmm. Well, why can't I do that? Why can't I ride a motorcycle with the guys? Why can't I play baseball with the guys? Everything was about being with the guys because I didn't fit in with the women. Um, and, and I never understood why I didn't. But now the older I've gotten, I understand it more. And it's not that I didn't fit in with the women. It's that women weren't around to fit in with. And Yeah, I, yeah that now, makes sense. 
And now that I've gotten older, there's all these women now. My husband loves it because I have a lot of female, you know, a lot of women friends. <laughs> now, it's great. Yeah. He's like, oh, you won't be hanging out with the guys anymore. So it's kind of a nice, <laughs> it's a refreshing thing. And and uh, one of the things, Kia, I, I, I actually, um, I'm not sure if I had told you or not, but I came out of that a 30 year background. I'm still, you know, in publishing and graphic design and illustration. And in 2013, I went back to school full time and I went into forestry full time. Wow. So I am actually a full time forester for the U.S. Forest Service. That's incredible. And, and so I'm in a man's world again. Thank you very much. <laughs> but it's not. Um, in my office, there are actually mostly women who work in my office. Uh, my supervisor is going to be retiring probably in a few years. She's in her 60s. And, oh, my gosh, she's mo- one of the most incredible women I've ever worked with. But in going back to college and getting my degrees in forestry, natural resources, and mapping GIS, um, I met the most amazing group of women. And, and I didn't know how it was going to be for me going back when I was 48 years old, I think it was. I, um, I thought, you know, I'm old. There's going to be guys there going, young guys who are probably going to run circles around me. Uh, And I didn't think about the women, but certainly the whole program was filled with these amazing young women who are foresters. And and I've continued my relationship with them. And they've none of them veterans, of course. But you know what? I think because of what happened to me in the military, them being able to be friends, it's opened my my life up into. I mean, Kia, I've just just meeting you. I've you know, like you said, I I never have a bad time being around other women veterans. I don't, and and it's just mm-hmm. a neat thing. It's I consider it kind of an adventure moving forward because I've never had that in my life. So this is all new to me, and this is ever since the magazine started about two years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. this is refreshing. And we talked we talked about what was it like. Not even a year ago, maybe a year ago, where I was really struggling, like with um, imposter syndrome. That phrase came out mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, right? Yep. Everybody yeah. was talking about imposter syndrome, and I was like, "How yeah. can I, like, how what what makes me qualified to to edit a woman veterans magazine? Do mm-hmm. like, should I have served for twenty years? Should I have been in a war zone? Should I have been in the army or the marines? Like, should I have had this experience or that experience? Like, like." am I allowed to be here in this space? We really had to have that conversation because it was like, why is nobody else doing this? You know, Yeah. but we're here. And then what are we going to do with other people that are in the same space? Well, we have to lift them up. Like we have to help them, you know, like we have to help each other, you know, (laughs) you know, it's not about us or it's not about you, but it's about showing that there's other people out there. You know, this space exists and there are women in it and they're, they're, experiences and their stories have to come to the forefront we do not we we don't have to compare ourselves with other people we exist here in our own right and i thought that was really interesting it was something that i personally had to work through i definitely felt that the same way when i decided to start this podcast like who's Mm -hmm. gonna listen to me and then i just reconciled it as you know what if one person is helped if i can help one woman with sharing one of these stories, if I have one person that listens to an episode each time I publish one, then I will have done my job. What I set out to do is to make a difference in the space for female veterans. And there was only one other podcast ahead of mine, um, Women of the Military, with my dear friend, Amanda Huffman. 
And oh, she, yeah. she, um, she was the one who I looked at and said, wow, there's only one woman doing this. Of course I've got to do this. And, and her podcast differs because she does active duty and veterans. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was, um, other podcasts that did male and female, but there was no one who did like only female veterans, only women really. Right. So, and when I entered the space, I had a lot of self-doubt, but I just said, you know, it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary if I want to make a positive impact for female veterans. And now I see um, all these female veteran podcasts coming be up mm -hmm. behind me and it makes me yeah. so excited. And of course, the, what I want to do is lift them up. <laughs> so, and yeah, celebrate yeah. them. There's value in it. And it's, you know, there aren't just 10, like I'm realizing that there aren't just 10 women that exist. Like, you know, there's, there's million, you know, there's, mm -hmm. I don't know, 200,000 women that, that the women's memorial is looking for these, these people <laughs> exist or their children exist and they know that their mom was in the service, you know, or, or whatever, you Her know, grandma. their aunt. Yeah. Their aunt. I mean, somebody, I don't know. There, there's a lot out there. There's space enough for people, you know? But I look at what you just said, Kia, about you when you first started it, it helping just one person. And um, mm -hmm. when I was actually, when I went back to college, there wasn't a, a veterans organization at the college I went to. And I was trying to develop one. So I actually brought in the Student Veterans of America. And um, so we became a chapter. And our meeting started. I had a gentleman from uh, UC Berkeley, Cal Berkeley, who was a, an older veteran who wasn't a part of the college, but he wanted to find out about helping this club that was started. So for the first, I want to say three months, four months of, of having these meetings through student veterans of America, I was the president and there was no members and oh. he was attending as a guest each time. Oh, and how sweet. He, says to me, he, says to me, he says, Christine, he says, we haven't had any members. He says, but you come out here every single time. And he says, you meet me. We discuss things that can help veterans and you continue to come in and you're still positive, even though there's nobody here joining you yet. <laughs> How can you do that? And I said, because if we can reach one person, they multiply. And as soon as you keep reaching those people and they keep multiplying, that's when you know that you are successful. So when he came to one of our next meetings, I think it was maybe our fifth or sixth meeting, I had one person show up. And then, oh. and then as it went down the road and you look, uh, the first year after the first year, I think we had 40 members at the first year, the end of the first year, we had 188 veterans in our college. They wouldn't give me a mailing list or anything. They would just tell me how many we had. So I had to figure out how to get those veterans to come to our meetings. I had to figure it out myself. And so we ended up with having 40 veterans eventually. And he was telling me, I told him the most important person is the person who's sitting right in front of you. Forget about those people who aren't with you yet because they're not important to you. The people who are sitting right in front of you are the ones who are important because if you start ignoring the people who are in front of you, then guess what? They're going to become the people who are ignoring you. Mm -hmm. So those are the most important people are the ones that you are, they're sitting right there. And so that's why it's always nice when you get that one person. And if they believe in you and they know you're there for them, they bring in that next person and then that next person and then that next person. And so when you said that, that's exactly my feelings is that that's the most important thing. When you reach that one person, that feels the best. And I know, uh, I don't know how Sheila's going through her emotions with the magazine, but 
I know I tell my husband, I'm not sure at what point I'm going to be, wow, look at how many issues we've sold because we're printing now. And we are, we are selling issues. People are buying issues. They love the magazine. And so I'm just in the mail. Oh, did you get here? (laughs) Good, good. And, and it's exciting to see it in print not digitally, but it's exciting to see that printed mm-hmm. on a page. And I told my husband, I'm just not sure at what point is going to be like, oh, is this many sold? Are this many sold? And that's shipping them out all <laughs> over the world. And and so it's so exciting. And I love hearing back from people. I just got texts from uh, Woven, the organization Woven. Oh, no, Woven. They, they just uh, they just emailed me and said we Tracy Tracy Rosado she just said I just got the magazines I'm so excited about giving them to the people in the organization so it it's nice when you get that feedback and you've hit that one person and that one person has multiplied and that's what we're doing you know it's amazing so I, 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 I had think- a wonderful experience with Woven last year I did um I was a guest speaker at one of their events. I love them. They're doing amazing things. What were you going to say, Sheila? Oh, I just, I think that like to piggyback off of what Krista said is, so my husband knew that I was working on this and, and I have to give him props because I didn't, I didn't really talk about my military service at all. He's the one who kept telling people, yeah, she was in the air force. And I kept saying like, why do you keep doing this? Why, why? And he, and he's, he's a person who said, you know, he always wanted to be in the Marines. He chose to have a family instead. And he was more proud of my military service than I was. But, you know, I had all that difficulty and all of that, you know, personal baggage and esteem issues and whatnot. So um, we were out on our motorcycles one time with a friend and we, you know, we wear patches and stuff. And we, everybody wears a flag patch pretty much, but I have Air Force patches on my vest. And some guy walked up and, and thanked my husband and his friend for their military service. He said, I saw you guys have all these military patches and he thanked them for their service. <laughs> and they both turned to him and they said, uh, we didn't serve, she did. And it was a little <laughs> awkward, but Philip has always been very proud of that. He He's the one who got me better into my own self-esteem and more accepting of myself and, and what I do. But he just took our magazine, Chris, because he sees it in print now. And he, you know, he's heard me talk about it. I have an interview. I have to go talk to Christina. I need to work on the magazine. Leave me alone. So he's been hearing all of this for the last mm-hmm. two years, but he doesn't see it because he doesn't really read things online. However, Chris yeah. just sent me the last two issues of the magazine. So now I have paper magazines that I had in my clutches. And my husband said, what is that? And I said, this is my magazine. Well, suddenly he wanted to take them to two ladies that he works with at the hospital. And I said, no, you cannot have these. These are mine. You know? And he said, well, I have these two veterans. And I said, well, you can take them a card and you can take them a bookmark and you can take them the magazine with a McDougal on the cover, the lady who was in the astronaut program. Sharon, yeah. I said, I said, you could take this, but you must bring it back to me. And so he took it like it was a piece of gold, took it to the hospital, showed it to one lady, and then came home. And by that time, I had the second magazine. And actually being able to open the pages and show him the pictures and say, I talked to this lady, and this lady does this. And and I talked to that lady, and she writes poems. And I talked to this woman, and she did that. You know, Now, all of a sudden, these stories are coming alive to him because he's seeing women's faces 
and he's seeing the pages that they're on. And then he stolen. I said, you can have this magazine. So I gave him the second one because he took care of the first one. And now he went to work and the ladies are reading these magazines. Well, now we have a story. We have a lady who's going to share some stuff with us (laughs) from his work. So yes, seeing it help, seeing one person say, wait a minute, I have something to say and my voice is valuable. And if this person wants to hear it, she's writing stories about veterans and I am somebody too, you know, because I keep telling people, you don't, you don't have to have the best story. You don't have to That's be right. the brigadier general, you know, Absolutely. You, you don't have to be the Navy first SEAL, story you don't have to be the first per- anybody, but your story is valid. What is your experience? You know, and I, I do, I'm very excited, you know, I'm very excited about the printed piece, obviously, but I'm just ex- excited to see people in it, to see these, all these women that I didn't know were out there. I think it's incredible. It is. It is. And I, I fully identify with that because that's what this show is about. Every story, every woman has a story and every story matters. And anyone who wants to share it has a space here to come and talk to me and share their story. And I, I just applaud you guys for what you're doing. The magazine is so necessary. I think I've seen only two magazines for female veterans so far. Um, that really, really focus on our stories. And so that's really, really amazing. And I'm so excited to actually be in one and have the podcast featured. So thank you for that. And I have one more question for you before we wrap it up. And that is, we talked a little bit about advice. And you gave some good advice, Christina, as far as focusing on the person in front of you. Right. That was beautiful advice. But I'm going to ask you for some more. So do you guys have some advice that you would like to share with our veteran sisters coming up behind you? Um, Yes, I actually have. uh, This is the advice I give a lot of people, uh, especially women. I say women my age. I'm still young. I'm I'm a young 55. Um, So I look at the fact that when I first got in the military, I kept thinking, this is my life. This is it. That's it. That's all there is to it. But it took me until 2013, which is when I went back to college, to realize I can really be anything I want. I can change my career. I can reinvent myself. Um, I can do it. I can do what I want to do. You know, I can become a forester at 50 years old and be out there with the big boys, with the big girls, you know, with whoever's out there, it doesn't have to just be the fact that, oh, look, she's a female, she's 55, and she's out there in a men's world. No, I'm a 55-year-old individual who's very good at my job, and I got my job because of my skills. doesn't matter whether I'm a woman or not. And I reinvented myself. And I'm preparing my retirement with the government, buying back my 10 years, two months and three days from the military, so I can take advantage of all that some of the wasted time I feel like I put in, but it's not wasted, you know, and that puts a smile on my face because I'm not beholden to the federal government. I've only got seven years left to retire though. So I think I can do it at this point. I've got, you know, I've got this and this is my career right now. Um, I still do the publishing. I still do my illustration work and my graphic design on the side. My husband owns the design firm. He runs it full time. I help him when I can. And I am the publisher of a vow magazine and I enjoy doing it. So that that's my advice is you can reinvent yourself. There's nothing wrong with it, but own it. Don't have the imposter feelings. 
own it. Go out there and say, I'm a forester. Uh, I'm a publisher. I'm a photographer. I, you know, I'm an editor. I'm, I'm a podcaster. Own it. And the moment you own it and you hand that business card out to somebody and says, here's my business card. This is what I am and this is what I do. That's who you could be. You can be anything you want. And that's, that's my advice. Beautiful. How about you, Sheila? Um, I'm looking something up real quick. Um, so there's lyrics from, uh, um, I think it's called A Head Full of Doubt. Oh, by the Avett brothers, actually. So, and I, I have it on like my LinkedIn profile, but essentially the the statement is decide what to be and go be it. And I know that with like the imposter syndrome and stuff, it was very, you know, I wanted to be, uh, when I was younger, I wanted to be a photographer. I wanted to work on the photo staff at school. And I did. And I wanted to be a linguist because my high school teacher she was in the army and she had gone to the linguist school and she knew French and Spanish and she also knew English and she also knew German. So I wanted to be a linguist. So I did, I went to the linguist school Yeah, I wanted to be in the military and, and I did, I went in the military and then I got cross-trained into photography. So I ended up back in photography, you know, that, that first initial thought. And for a long time, like I questioned myself, like, am I, Am I not a linguist because I didn't go on to the secondary school, to the crypto school, and I didn't go to survival training, and I didn't go overseas? You know, I didn't go up in an AWAC and, AWACS and go listen. You know, what makes me a linguist? Is it because I went to school and I like languages and I learned a few of them? Same thing with photography. You know, I mentioned earlier, I didn't get formal education. Does that make me less of a photographer? I still go take pictures of weddings. I still go take pictures on my own. I still am doing this. I'm still a photographer. I was in the military and I am now. So I think that it was when I heard those lyrics a couple of years ago, it really rang true for me when I was hitting this um, imposter syndrome and Christina and I were talking about it was, do I have a right to be here? You know, am I an editor without a credential behind me that says that I'm an editor? I didn't finish college. Well, yeah, I am because I decided to go do it. I decided to go be it. So I think that that's really interesting. I think for anybody who's struggling with that, I think that's really important. Decide what to be and go be it. You don't have you, like you don't have to be it according to how anybody else defines you. And there's always going to be somebody who tries to define you more or define you less or define you differently. You decide who you are and what you are and what you want to be. And then go find other people that are doing that too. You know, I mean, I, and they will support you. Find your support network because they do exist. You don't have to bash your head against the people who aren't supporting you. Go find the ones who are. Stop investing your time. You know, for me, stop investing my time over here trying to fit in. Go find the people who want me to be there. I think that's really, uh, that's really my biggest. I think piece of advice, you are who you say you are. Oh my gosh, that is fantastic advice from both of you. And I'm so inspired that I'm just going to let you know that I've decided to just go be a documentary filmmaker and I'm going to go be it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go be it. I'm actually working on my first project right now. So I'm going to keep that a little bit under wraps until it was more along the way. (laughs) <laughs> but I felt so inspired 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, because when you start something new, I'm I'm not the youngest girl out there anymore. And you start something new a little bit later in life, like you were saying, Christina, it can be, you can feel a little bit like, wow, this is a lot to just completely shift gears and move into a new territory. But you can mm-hmm. do it. You can yeah. do it. And just be it if you want to be it. So I love right. nice. Thank you. Thank you yeah. so much for it. Now, I know I said that was my last question, but technically I have one little one more. And that is, if we want to follow along in your journey, how can we follow you? Are you talking about Avow Magazine? Yes, like for Avow. Where can we find it? Um, I know you have a website. Are you on so- you're on social media. So where can we find you? Um, uh, the most active place we are at is on Facebook. Uh, facebook.com slash avow magazine very easy to find us we do free giveaways online periodically and of course our issues are free to read online and we have two printed issues out currently that can be purchased on our website or at avowmagazine.com which is our website and we've also just uh, partnered with women's veterans alliance with melissa washington who is one of our advisors um, on her website, you can purchase the magazine for less money than our website. But the reason we did that is because you can save on your shipping by bundling your magazine and purchasing other stuff off of her website. So um, it sounds kind of odd, but it it's a great partnership and it allows you to buy other stuff that has to do with being a woman veteran from her. And it supports one of our sister veterans. So it, it kind of works all the way around. I love that. And uh, everyone knows that I will drop the links in the show description box or the show notes as we call them. And so that you can find that stuff easily. If it doesn't hyperlink, just copy and paste and you'll find all of that good information there in the show notes. Um, so I wanted to say thank you so much for being uh, a guest on or my guests on the show today. It has been an incredible honor and privilege to sit and have this time with you and learn about you and hear your story and and just share this moment with you. So thank you so much for, for coming. Thank this you for was coming. Really, this was really wonderful. This was just great to sit and visit, especially in, you know, we have our video Zooms on. So it's nice to see another human being yes. too. <laughs> yes. right now. This yes. is wonderful. It's very nice. Thanks. And yeah. uh, when, when you get your documentary out there and we all get to see it, well, we can all say, oh, well, we knew her when she was just <laughs> <laughs> No, this is lovely. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Have it. And we hope you have a great rest of your week. Thank you. You too. And I will keep in touch. I hope you will do the same. And I appreciate you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, everybody, you know how this goes. I want to say thank you so much for coming on this journey with me. I appreciate you so, 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 so much for all the listens, sharing the episodes, um, for everybody that's donating to help keep the show going. You know, you can find all of that information, all of the causes I'm supporting, our female veteran activism that I support. Everything's in the show notes. Um, And I appreciate you. I love you guys. And I'll talk to you next time.